0: Chillingham are on the Wembley way. Good one. And that is a good one. Oh, it's a good
1: one. Brandy Thompson. A corner for Chillingham.
2: Hello and welcome to the Duels fan Fancast. You join me for a very special episode today. We are joined by a man who has made over 376 club appearances with 45 goals in that time between 1984 and He 1980. He's of course the man who led the Jules to their first league title in 50 years back in the 2012-13 season. He's a man that I would call a legend of the football club and gave me, and I'm sure you as well, one of your favourite seasons, being a Gillingham fan. We've had former players, we've had Adam Barrett, Matt Fish, Stuart Nelson. Now it's time to bring on the mastermind behind it. I'm very proud to welcome to the fancast today, Mr Martin Allen. Martin, how are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm very well, like everybody else, tucked in the house, looking out uh, on a grey sky and a bit of rain. But uh, I've got to say, Owen, I was quite excited about doing something for you and the uh, Gillingham.
2: Yeah, I did think about it, actually. It's probably the first bit of media you've done with Ginningham fans since you actually left, if I'm, not, if I'm not wrong.
1: Yeah, well, when you do leave the football club, you always have to sign these documents or these agreements that make that state that you're not allowed to talk about anything or say anything. So uh, you are tongue-tied as a manager when you leave a football club. You want to just get out there and tell them everything. But unfortunately, legal documents um, you know mean that you can't.
2: Yeah, a bit of a poison chalice these days, isn't it? With more social media coming into play, you can get caught out any time. Oh yeah, I don't bother with all that stuff. Um,
1: social media. I used to be on bits and pieces, but uh, God bless it, uh, it's too painful, too difficult to cope with. Um, you know, I ended up wanting to drive up the motorway one night to someone in Liverpool uh, about three o'clock in the morning and uh, meet him face to face. So uh, when I finally woke up in the morning,
2: I decided that was the end of it and that I wasn't going to uh, put myself through all that sort of stuff. Well, rather you than me doing something like that. But um, we'll crack straight on with a club career. Your first club's QPR. You became a pro in um, 1986. You had a great time there. 136 appearances with 16 goals. Played in uh, the 1986 League Cup final. Uh, sadly, a defeat against Oxford, but that was the first club you were made pro at and the first club where you really managed to kick off your career before of course you went and joined other clubs which we'll get into at the point but being at QPR how how was that for you becoming a pro and stepping up at the time
1: it was amazing um it was an amazing experience I've been at QPR since I was 12 years old a schoolboy in Reading just playing park football and then district football obviously playing for my school and um it just sort of grew from there in the end i could have quite a lot of clubs that i used to go training at um but qpr was closest really to my reading home uh on the train into paddington and then a couple of tubes out to shepherd's bush so it was the it was the right club to go to and of course making my debut away at newcastle and my league debut a full league debut away at newcastle and then coming on as a sub away at luton um it was that day that was a dream come true to actually get on the pitch in a football league match was just um what i dreamt of since i was a little boy
2: is it a bit of an intimidating atmosphere in that sense or is it a mix of more the nerves and the excitement but the excitement in the end just overcomes the nerves and you get to really live your dream out without really any of the nerves getting in the way um when i was sub
1: at Luton, that really didn't bother me um that didn't bother me. I couldn't wait to get on the pitch. They had a big centre-back that I didn't like. I was only about 18 or 19, called Steve Foster. He had a big headband and a big black curly frizzy hair. He was the captain. His shirt was too tight. And he was a dominant captain, old-fashioned bully type. And I went on when we had a free kick on the edge of Luton's box. Uh, that was my... You know, I was introduced as a sub right at that moment. And I remember seeing Steve Foster stood in that position, just to the side of the wall, not closing the ball down, but that big, bigger, like his own man wall himself. (laughs) And basically, I didn't like it. Um, So when I went onto the pitch, the the free kick hadn't been taken, and I went and stood in front of him and, uh, and just trod on his foot hard and backed into him. And he looked at me, this skinny little kid. (laughs) He just pushed me. And I said to the referee, what the, what's going on here? (laughs) So before the ball had even been kicked on my Football League debut, I was getting in trouble and causing trouble. and, um, And that was probably...
2: How my whole life has been. <laughs> that probably sums you up in a way actually doesn't it? it? Because you think about like how you're coming on as a as a young lad into your first your first game in the league against this um this centre back he's probably been there for many years and you're giving it right to him and he's probably thinking who's this guy? I've never seen him before and you put stamp your authority on the game as soon as you can like, Just because 'cause I'm a young lad, you ain't gonna get around me that easy. Absolutely. But
1: I've been brought up like that since I was a little boy. I don't Um, I was always in the middle of it, always used to wear number four, central midfield, and uh, whoever we played against, uh, from when I was a little boy, he always used to say to me, always used to say, don't forget, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, because I wasn't very tall, I was a little kid, so uh, this little kid with the biggest mouth in the team, uh, I used to kick everybody and ram into everybody, and then uh, have the gob to go with it. And I was playing two years older than myself in the Reading uh, school team that I was in. So I was two years up, um, and it, uh, I've been treated like it. If ever I got hurt, uh, I had to get up. I was never allowed to stay on the floor. I was never allowed to cry. And it was, um, if he got you, you make sure you get him back double quick. And I was treated and trained like that since when I was eight years old.
2: So do you think you're a bit, you're a bit mature, more mature as football for your age, in the sense that although you were young, you had like sort of the football in mind of someone who's ten years older, perhaps.
1: Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, my dad was um, a player. My dad was also a coach and a manager, and on top of that, he was also um, what do they call it? He's the coach for the football association. The coaches, it's all around uh, Berkshire, Hampshire, Oxfordshire. Hartfordshire, uh, Middlesex, he used to do courses in the school holidays for school teachers and people that wanted to get into football coaching. My dad used to do the training sessions to teach him how to do it. And on every school holiday, I used to go along. So by the time I was 12 years old, I knew all the passing drills, dribbling drills, training drills, and, and I used to be taking part in them to help with the numbers of, uh, of boys playing. And by the end of it, by the time I was twelve, I was telling them out of blinking through the coaching. <laughs> so it was. So i had been brought up on it from a young age, as you rightly say, and
2: um, and just always felt as you know I could do it really. All right. So you moved, you moved on to to West Ham in um, 1989. Spent six six years there between eighty nine and ninety five. You were bought for a uh, 670k fee Is that, Was that at that time Felt like a lot of money Or was it Considering now of course It's sort of peanuts really In this day and age But back then Was that quite a big fee And was there any pressure put on you By a fee that big at your age Nah that fee
1: didn't bother me One little bit um, A month before that move to West Ham um, George Graham Who used to be my youth team manager At QPR He'd moved uh, the year before to uh, Millwall, and then from Millwall, he moved to Arsenal. And I've been doing pretty well under that uh, manager at QPR ad called Trevor Francis. Mm. And George Graham tried to sign a double signing from QPR of David Seaman, the England goalkeeper, and myself. I think it was uh, £1 million, and it was 900000 for David Seaman, <laughs> and I think it was 100000 for me. Um, so that would have been an exciting move to go to Arsenal. Obviously, to work with my old manager would have been magnificent, um, but that didn't happen. And then, it, but of course, that followed the fallout of uh, the birth of my son George. Uh, when I left the game up at Newcastle, on a, an early on a Saturday morning, because I wanted to see the birth of my son. Yeah, they
2: didn't. They wanted to make you play the game, didn't they? Uh,
1: well, yeah, they, he did, not they, just him. Nobody else. Um, nobody else. Um, so then that move came to West Ham soon after that and um, it was uh, it was a, a magnificent opportunity for me to play for a, a club with such a great history and where my family had come from in the east end of London, All everyone in my family is West Ham supporters.
2: Yeah, I said to um, um, Stuart Nelson the other day that um, given the character you are, like, if none of us even knew you played for West Ham at any point, we just the way you act we would have an idea that you, was, you had some sort of West Ham in you from some aspect. Um, <laughs> met in the most respectful manner possible <laughs> uh, so you made uh, 190 appearances for West Ham 25 goals in that time your first goal of course was in a, on your debut I think you scored the second goal in a uh, 3-2 win over Plymouth what memories do you have on that day obviously it being be in your debut just a great
1: day uh, the traffic going into the, into the ground at Upton Park I couldn't believe the amount of people that were going to watch the game when I used to play for QPR I knew the way into Rangers Stadium from the M4, um, around the back ways of Chiswick, and I never used to do it any traffic. I when I it. went to West Ham, first time, I'd left early because I didn't obviously want to be late. Um, the roads going into the, uh, to the ground, I'm not going to call it a stadium, the ground at Upton Park, I couldn't believe how many people with West Ham shirts, West Ham scarves, families, traffic. Oh, my God, what a buzz it was. And then, like you said, to score that diving header from that corner um, in front of that uh, that stand, I think it's the West Stand, was uh, quite a surreal
2: moment. Yeah, I can imagine, especially being at a club at West Ham, they're all very together, they all drive for the same thing. It's a very together-orientated uh, fan base, It still is now, of course. And then Moving on to 1991, you obviously won promotion to the first division, and then only two years later, promotion to the Premier League. That must have been a, a well-win couple of years for you
1: yeah it was it was, uh, it was it was up and down i think we got relegation within there as well and uh, to get that promotion uh, on that on that day was uh, was amazing A great experience and uh, one i learned from obviously
2: i can imagine that sort of that sort of time in your career you're still relatively early on really if you think about it and to get something like that is quite something memorable and obviously that must have given you the impetus to you know go into your coaching career later on and know how to get certain things done. And we'll come on to that with the obvious example, which we'll all have to talk about in coming time. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of stories that I, I researched before uh, coming on about your time at West Ham. The first one is is the obvious name tag of, of Mad Dog. I've I've heard this story a couple of times. I think it was to do with um, yourself. You are playing in the midfield alongside uh, Ian Bishop at the time at West Ham. So I, I think I know the story off, off the top of my head now, but... For those of people listening who aren't aware, can you just repeat the story of how Mad Dog came to be? (laughs) I must have been asked this question a thousand times. A thousand and
1: one. Well, the Sun newspaper um, at the time was a big-selling newspaper, no social media. So everybody bought a paper in those days, everybody. And it was either, I think, most people bought the Sun. And on the front page of the Sun newspaper was a story about these mad dogs being imported into this country from America. And they were savage, and they would fight, and, you know, you know as we know, those dogs do. So anyway, we're playing in a game, and it was quite a, a well-run story over a few weeks, because some of these dogs started attacking young children and people, generally, I think. And We're playing a game, and one day, uh, I'd injured somebody over near the chicken run at West Ham, And uh, I had a skinhead at the time, my shirt was out, my socks were down a little bit, and stood there looking quite aggressive in that horrible face that I can sometimes have. And Ian Bishop, who was quite the opposite type of character to me, um, he, he was all smiley and happy and enjoyed playing good football, whereas my job was the opposite side of that. Uh, he came over. He said, "Matt, you got all spit down on the outside of your mouth," and he pointed up at me, up at the chin. I said, "I looked at him and said, you what?'" He said, "I've got you got you got all spit," and he laughed as he said it. "You got all spit round your mouth, like saliva, you know, all that sort of stuff round the outside of your mouth." But I don't think he used the word saliva. And then um, I said, "Yeah." He said, "You look like one of those mad dogs." <laughs> And he started laughing. Well, some of the people in the chicken run over the far side, they picked up on it. And from that and from the other players, it stuck. And it was probably Ian Bishop that day. I can't remember who it was that was injured, but I think he was all right. Um, It kind of stuck from there and it just rolled on and on and on. So did the Sun campaign about these dogs being banned coming from America. Um, It it just rolled on from that, really. And onwards from that, there were probably a few naughty tackles I did which was, um, you know, bad tackles, I guess, in that time. And it all just kind of picked up. And then some funny bits and pieces I did, which I never planned, they just kind of happened. And it all just rolled into one.
2: Was it a nickname that at the time you got given it, you were thinking, oh God, here we go, I'm never going to shake this. But then in the end, you sort of just grew into it and started to enjoy it as a sort of a name tag as it was.
1: Well, it's a a really weird thing because I also used to run a, a soccer school company. And I had a lot of soccer schools all over the south of England, including a, uh, a, a football holiday camp in the New Forest in Hampshire. So I used to work extremely hard away from football, trying to develop um, a new career for myself and experience what it was to manage a company um, to put me in good stead for when I finished playing. I used to go and see sponsors and see chief executives in big companies up in London and i give him my spiel and after about 10 minutes the guy would say to me oh i understand your name's mad dog why would i want to put my children in a course with you and it's a very difficult question to answer yeah <laughs> um but god bless that company went on for 12 years we're very very successful with a lot of big sponsors it put me in a good stead but at that point the mad dog thing was a bit of a, a bit of a noose around my neck but when you think of it how many players do you know that have actually got their nickname a nickname not many not many and i could be in an airport i could be filling up a petrol i could be walking down a high street wherever Um, whatever club people support they'll come up to me and say all right mad dog all right mad dog and it's kind of stuck wherever i go really
2: at least it's something you kept keeping your whole career and it sort of does what you did with all the tackles and whatnot. It sort of ties in brilliantly and it's something you probably will never get rid of now, but it's something that these people were always attached to you. So you another story I heard, this is when uh, obviously Harry Redknapp was involved in the club and you had a away game against Chelsea and I believe you forgot your boots and had to wear a pretty colourful uh, colorful um <laughs> set of shoes to... Uh, How did you find out about that? I, I did my research, Martin, I told you. I spent hours on this. You're one cornered way, now.
1: Uh, on, on the Friday lunchtime after training at West Ham at Chadwell Heath, you know near Romford there, I said to the manager Harry Redknapp, um, could I live in West London, or west of London, not I don't live in West London, um, could I go straight to Stamford Bridge instead of coming round to West Ham and then coming back across? He went, yeah, no problem. Make sure you're in the dressing room for half past one. So anyway, on a Saturday morning before a game to uh just to keep busy and pass the time um, i used to go out into my garden and i used to do a bit of weeding or trimming the plants and bushes and just tick over outside and just keep my mind going um you know a bit, you know nervous tension and all that sort of stuff getting rid of all that anyway end of that little gardening session came in had my shower had my pre-match meal scrambled egg on toast with beans and a bottle of water and a nice. banana I had my tracksuit on Claret and Blue, and I went to the front door, and by the front door, I guess like most houses, you have all your shoes, don't you, where, You know your shoes that you wear. So I was looking around, and I couldn't see my trainers, which was a bit weird. So I looked all around the house, looked outside in the little bit where all my gardening tools were, looked in the car, couldn't find my blinking trainers anywhere. The only pair of trainers that were by the front door was a pair of pink, bright pink Converse boots so so i didn't have no option i had a pair of black shoes to wear or my pink converse boots so i'd done up with converse boots with a bit of a smile on my face on the bottom step in the house smiling and grinning to myself knowing that this was going to be quite funny drove into west london got to the gate at Stamford bridge and i said the car park pass for martin allen please he went, no car park pass for you mate I said, yeah, it's been put on yesterday by the manager. Um, He said, I can come straight here. Martin Allen, I played for West Ham. He said, I know who you played for. There's no car park pass. And you ain't coming in here. And he gave me the look. So I had to drive out onto the King's Road. I've done a couple of rights and a couple of lefts and found a car parking space. And it's now getting just after 20 past one. And it's closing in on me. half past one deadline that I had to be in on time. Yeah, Yeah. So I started jogging along. And on the left-hand side by that little one-back bridge there's a pub with all the Chelsea fans outside and they saw me running along and I thought aye aye I'd better cross over here just in case so I crossed the road and they all recognised me <laughs> and I thought and by the time I got to the dressing room I had a full sweat on and as I knocked on the door to go into the awaiting dressing room at Stamford Bridge Harry Redknapp was there Frank Lampard was there all the other players were there and as I walked in they saw I had a pair of pink converse boots on. So everybody laughed, apart from Harry. He sort of looked the other way and ignored it. And God bless, we won that day, scored with a diving header.
2: The luck the next of the pink.
1: I had to wear a suit to the own game, you have to wear suits to the own game. and to, Into the game, I wore a suit, and I kept my pink converse boots to wear with my suit. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Redknapp went absolutely ballistic.
2: Could be a good after luck charm, that, though.
1: After the game, he said, to wear them, you've got to be a good player. You ain't a good player. If you're going to wear a pair of boots like that, you've got to show it. And you can't wear them. Get your shoes on. And I just sort of everyone else was laughing, especially Julian Bix. Um, but it's certainly something, um, you know, if I was a manager and that sort of stuff happened, oh, my God, could you imagine it?
2: You could have just covered it up and said, so "I've worn them once, and we've won once." So clearly, you can just at least make a case that you can wear him every game until you lose. Yeah,
1: but we lost the next home game, and I'd worn him so he was not happy. And you don't
2: argue with Harry when he's not happy. No, oh, there you go. Then, <laughs> so we'll move. We'll, we'll move on to how you left West Ham. You're playing alongside in the midfield alongside Julian Dix, as you mentioned. There is a very notable name; everyone knows who he is. Uh, John Monker, Don Hutchinson. And there were a few disciplinary issues, including yourself getting getting a red card against your old side QPR. That was in May of nineteen ninety five, and you only went on to play five more times for the Hammers after that before leaving. What What do you think ultimately led to the way the way you ended up leaving West Ham? In that sense, was it a bit due to the disciplinary issues throughout that midfield, or was it just like a natural end to your time at the club? No,
1: no disciplinary issues. Um, it was it was plain and simple. Were well, two things. Two things. Um, number one, um, my left knee was in a bad way. My left knee, left knee was not right. I wasn't training all the time. I played in every game, um, but I was not right. Um, and in the end, it proved to be my downfall when I did go to Portsmouth. I think it was a year and a half later. Yeah. I had two operations on it, and I couldn't uh, couldn't really play anymore. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing that was the, the crucial thing biggest thing is that uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Um, In the early January, uh, he was given uh, six or seven months to live. And from a person that virtually hardly ever missed the game of football that I played in, hardly ever, very, very rarely did he ever miss a game with me playing. Home or away, he would be there. My dad was ill for the first time and it took over my life, to be honest. Um, My love of football, I wouldn't say it, well, I'd say it faded, it didn't disappear, but it faded. Harry was brilliant, he gave me a lot of time off to take him to the Royal Barks Hospital in Reading for for treatment. Um, I spent a lot of time with my mum and dad. My dad had been my mentor for my whole life. Um, As well as a dad, he was more of a coach and a manager to me personally. And so, when he was poorly, I knew he was going to be you know he was going to be dying in the not too distant future um, going out with that that ground at Upton Park without my my dad being there, it may sound a bit I wasn't sure I wanted to do it I wasn't sure I could handle it, and I wasn't fit, and I wasn't playing as well and I wasn't as mobile as what I was. So I think those were the those that they were the main two factors that um, you know pushed me out to uh, to Portsmouth, and it was a breath of fresh air to get away, change the scenery. After my dad had died, um, you know I, I had to do something about it because I wasn't handling it very well.
2: Mm, of course. Well, these, of course. You can look back of your whole career now and know you you did an incredibly incredible job in just making him forever proud of you and obviously your achievements back that up completely and obviously it's a tough thing to go through obviously it's hard to relate to in some aspects but it you know obviously we we're very very sorry to hear that loss um but yeah um as I say your your achievements following that just back up how much of a Mentor, I suppose he was to you that you could recreate some of his greatest achievements, and then obviously keep keep making him proud of what you're doing. Um. So, you said you did move on to Portsmouth. Forty five appearances there, only four goals. Five hundred thousand fee from West Ham to Portsmouth after initial successful loan spell. But was it was it a bit of a frustrating time at Portsmouth between the the three years you were there, including the loan spell to South End, of course, which is where you ended your career. Between Portsmouth and Southend, uh, career obviously ended in, in ninety eight. So wh- how did that that last three or so years of your career f- feel to you? Because you obviously retired at thirty two, which that nowadays at least would be considered quite a quite an early age to retire somewhat, depending on what your level you were at, of course. But back then it might have been a more common theme. Did you just feel it was it didn't quite work out at Portsmouth, and obviously, given what you said about your dad, how he was, how he was a coach, and you were learning that as well. Did you feel like it was the right time for you to give up football in terms of playing and then go and prosper in the coaching side? Um,
1: The physio and the doctor at Portsmouth did not know and they couldn't work out what was wrong with my left knee. And I'd had three or four operations on it. And each time I recovered full gym work and rehab work, which anybody would tell you is quite hard work and can be quite tedious. Mm. So I'd got myself into great shape, ready for when I came back into the team at Portsmouth. I was club captain there. And um, it flared up again. I went to see a different consultant up in Harley Street in London. So they put me in for an exploratory operation. They didn't know what it was they were going in for. But that I knew it was going to be, uh, like, as I say, exploratory. Anyway, I got put in late afternoon on surgery. And then at, um, it was about quarter to ten at night. I was in a nice hospital uh, on my own in a room. And there was a knock on the door. This guy, the consultant, came in. And he had a nice suit on. He had his um, flip chart thing, his little clipboard with him. He had those glasses, what they call bifocal glasses. You know, half of them are missing. And he stood down at the end of the bed. He looked down the bed. He said, Oh, Martin, good evening. I said, Oh, hi. And he had a really straight face on, like an old fashioned headmaster. Mm. And he said, uh, He flipped open the page, uh, the the paper. He rolled the paper over, over his little um, clipboard. That was it, clipboard. That's the word I'm looking for. Rolled the clipboard over. He had a little pause. He said, I've got bad news for you, Martin. He said, uh, "He said, I don't think... Uh, he said, well, you won't play uh, professional football anymore. Uh, this is the injury. This is what you've got. He said, there's nothing I'll be able to do about it. He said, "And uh, he said, I'm terribly sorry. He said, but it's not going to be happening for you anymore. He said, uh, I know this is devastating news to you.
0: He said, I'll come back and see you early tomorrow morning. He said, and we'll have a further chat. So, so as quickly as he said
1: it, As quick as he said it, he went out of the room, and I was sat in there on my own. It was quite late at night. And um, I can't deny, I can't deny I had tears uh, coming down my cheeks. I realised now that it was never, ever going to happen for me again. Um, That buzz of playing professional football since that first time when I came on as a sub at Luton. I was never, ever going to have that feeling in my life again, which is the most amazing rush of energy could ever get. Yeah. And it was over. Um, so it was a tough time. And it was, it was only, what, a year and a half before that i have lost my dad. Um, and, it, and it put me in a, in a bad place, really, with uh, wondering, wondering as a person what I was going to do and how I was going to earn a living, make a living as a 32-year-old. When you stopped playing football, the sponsors for my soccer schools didn't really want to know because I had access to all the top players at that time. So I was left very vulnerable in a state of uh, uncertainty: how
2: I was going to live my life, what I was going to do. Yeah, so of course you, you, you made your first step into into management as assistant at Reading, and that was in two thousand two. But before we get to that, as you mentioned there, the, the gap between obviously you retiring and. 98, and then you're getting the Reading assistant job in 2002. What what was that four-year period in between like for you, with obviously the uncertainty surrounding your, your involvement in football? I was a gardener. Oh. I can, I I can see that, to be fair. Gardens.
1: Didn't you know
2: that?
1: No. <laughs> I lived in a posh area of West London called Gerrard's Cross. So I think I was the poorest person in Gerrard's Cross. Um, but one day I thought to myself, well, I need to do something. So I put an advert in the local newsagent in the middle of the high street in Gerard's Cross, a gardener. 10 years experience, male, uh, 32 years old, just moved to the area, um, happy to do any work uh, starting ASAP. Well, within 48 hours, I had about 10 people call me, and I had uh, I had 10 gardens in Gerard's Cross and I was doing people's gardens. Didn't know what I was doing, but I could cut the grass and do the edging and trim the rose bushes. Apart from that, I didn't have a clue what was going on. And um, that's what I was doing. And on top of that, I went on to a couple of courses. And I was doing some scouting at the time for Kevin Keegan at Fulham.
0: Mm.
1: And it was at, it was when I did that scouting for Kevin Keegan at Fulham that I first had my break. Because they'd sent me to watch Regging play at home against Newport County, I think it was, it was a Saturday afternoon and Reading haven't won something like 12 matches.
2: Yeah, they were and in a relegation zone when you joined them.
1: Yeah, it was nil-nil, second half, 20 minutes to go, and, uh, I don't know, let me take you back, the tickets that my son, George, and me had were in the corner flag at the Medeski Stadium, and it was a long way to see the pitch, so at half-time, we had a cup of tea in the scout lounge, and I said, come on, let's get some seats on the halfway line. So he walked along the back of the boxes at the Mideski, sneaked into a couple of seats. 20 minutes into the second half, the crowd was starting to get a bit restless. And a bloke, 20 yards to my left, stood up and shouted, Pardew, you don't know what you're doing. Five minutes later, Alan Pardew made two substitutions. He took off a right back and put the right winger to right back the centre forward came across to play right wing and he put on a centre forward one substitution so that was it and I thought it was a positive and a good move well this fella stood up he's 20 yards away from me he stood up and he went you don't know what you're effing doing Pardew sack him and I looked across and I thought I don't think there's much more the manager could have done and I don't know why I did it because I didn't know Alan Pardew I stood up and said, "Boy, why don't you sit down and support the team? I didn't know him. I have my son next to me. It's
2: just that instinct. Out of it, just pure instinct. About 30 seconds
1: later, it all gone a bit quiet because everybody could see that this bloke was a bit of a unit as well. It, this, this woman, this lady, not a woman, this woman, the lady in front of me and this bloke, looked, he looked, she looked her back at me over her right shoulder and the bloke in front of me looked back at me over his left shoulder. And the bloke said, Thanks ever so much for sticking up for my brother. I went, You what? And she said, Thanks very much for sticking up for my husband.
2: Oh. Yeah, I said, I Oh, that's going. right,
1: no problem. Carried on watching the game. Reading won the game 1 0.
2: Just the way it is,
1: isn't it? That, I got the job. <laughs> that is how I got
2: it. So it's always the, it's always the stories like that where you see, you always see, it's almost like it's scripted in a way. You hear a story about some guy berating the team, berating the tactics, and you just know in the back of your head that they're going to go and win this now. Like, even if, it, even though you know it's not scripted, you just say inside you know this will happen now because that's happened. But... I suppose that's me as a person. I suppose
1: that's my personality, my character. Um, and, you know, without going overboard. When I was Portsmouth reserve team manager in that last year of my contract, I took a reserve team to Medeski Stadium to play against Alan Pardew's Reading team. So for us at Portsmouth, it was quite a big game. uh, Going into play there, I think it was a Monday night, and we beat them 4-0. And our Portsmouth team, or my Portsmouth team at the time, was absolutely superb. Full of energy, full of enthusiasm. We played really good football, won comfortably. And Alan Pardew, at 9 o'clock I didn't know him I just said oh thanks ever so much for um, oh, just well done for uh, your team last night that's the best performance we've seen against any of the teams we've played all season uh, well done um, that was it Don't think nothing else of it and then a few months later six months later um, he rang me up whilst I was doing those gardens in Gerrard's Cross met him in Slough one Thursday night went to training on the Friday morning Play Colchester on a Saturday, one-one-nil, four thousand people in the Madejski Stadium, and that from that game I would say has been the springboard to to what's been happened at Reading over the last, what's it fifteen years? I can't, you know, deny that that has had a significant part to play in it.
2: Yeah, we mentioned that especially given what happened a couple of years after you left but when you did join up with Adam Pardew they were, as we mentioned in the relegation zone reading. but in the last 20 games they won uh, 12 of them I think and ended up achieving a a top 10 finish they so basically from the time you arrived given the situation they are in they showed almost like title winning form if you like to win 12 out of 20 and completely shoot up the uh, the top divisions is that when you thought perhaps your relationship with Adam Pardew at the time was he bringing you in is that when you maybe thought he he sort of looked at you and thought there's a, there's a good coach here. He knows what he's doing, and that perhaps gave you the extra confidence you needed to springboard into all the achievements you achieved post that era.
1: I didn't need any extra um, extra confidence. If anything, I had
2: too much. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I
1: didn't need any more really. I had self belief, the confidence. I uh, I had that in a, I had it in bundles and if you haven't got self belief if you haven't got confidence when you do that job and uh, if you doubt yourself in any way shape or form as a manager then uh, you're zero it can come across as arrogant it can come across as big headed it can come across as all those different words that we all know but uh, unless you you've got that that steely determination and that self belief then
2: uh, you can't be a manager you can't it's just not you just can't do it got to have proper thick skin for a role like that as well. Like, as you mentioned before, with the the abuse part you was getting, if you're, if you're someone in the hot seat at a, at a club like Redding and you're getting barrage abuse going towards you and you sort of fold yourself in and don't really know how to respond to it, you're not going to be able to take succeed because as tough as it is getting that sort of abuse, it, the best managers are the ones that can suck it up and turn it into a positive, which you did that day, of course.
1: Heroic, heroic. I was taught many lessons when I was a little boy playing in uh, school football and Sunday football and district football in Reading when I was a little boy. Because I was small and I was fearless at tackling and I was also gobby with my mouth to other players and the referee. I used to get abused every game I played by the opposition managers, coaches and parents. From when I was a little kid. When I used to get in the car, when I used to get in the car, my dad would say, Well done That's the way to do it. Don't Mm. say nothing back to them. Just get on and do it. And I was taught, and I was trained, if you like, from when I was a young age, that no people on the side of the pitch was ever, ever going to break me. And I would do everything I can. If they they made it hard for me, I'd make it worse for them. And he would always, always, always reiterate, um, don't let them get you. You get them. You get them. You get them. You go after them and just keep doing what you're doing. I used to tackle and I used to win and I used to shout about it big time, not shout literally but have comments to them and when I went into management all those things what i have been taught when I was a little kid, it was water off a duck's back, it made it even stronger for me and better for me.
2: I suppose it's about actions not words in response to that when you're getting that sort of abusive, let's say you're a manager for example, which of course you were, there's You know, people abusing you in the stands for results not perhaps going the right way. You don't turn around and you know give them a bit of lip or whatever. Backwards, you make the changes, you get the result, and then you have the satisfaction at the end of knowing that you turned it around and you you got the best out of it in the end. The last laugh, if you like.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, uh, just a real quick one. I played when I was young, and we played in a team uh, on the other side of Reading. And one of the boys that I was playing against was a good player, and his dad was over the far side of the pitch. And I kicked his son. His dad, I was only nine, his dad shouted at me about being a dirty little BAS. Are you allowed to swear on this? Uh,
2: preferably no, but if he Okay, allow oh, dad no,
1: called it... me um, uh, a dirty little bar steward. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay?
1: <laughs> okay?
2: Yeah, yeah. I went
1: to him from the middle of the pitch and said, why don't you F off? Yeah. His dad walked round the, yeah, the pitch and said, your son just told me to F off. And my dad said, right. <laughs> they said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, if I was you, I would F off. He said, I'll walk down and I'll have a chat with you. And this is from about 15 yards when the bloke's getting closer and closer. And my dad can sort of handled himself as well a little bit. So the bloke turned on his heels and walked all the way back round. And when I got back into the car, my dad said, um, whatever happens, when you're on that football pitch, you play and you do anything you can to win. Now you're off that football pitch and you're back in this car and we go home. You make sure you you behave properly and you conduct yourself and behave. You have good manners and you do things right. Because my mum was the opposite. He would make sure I'd done my own work, my bedroom was tidy, my shoes were clean, I brushed my teeth, I ate properly, I uh, had good standards of behaviour. So my mum was one side and my dad was on the other, and it kind of gave me a, a decent sort
2: of upbringing, I think. I, I, See, so that's one of them stories, I, I was saying to Stuart Nelson, some of the stories he told me about you. If someone had just told me that random story there, I'd say, yeah, have a laugh, that ain't happened." And When people realise it's you, you think, actually, yeah, I do believe that. It's just the nature nature of your character that we've all grown to love over the years. Um, so this is going to be one of them where we come back about ten, fifteen, hundred times throughout this podcast. But Barnet spell one two thousand and three to four. I've got actually a funny story about from your when you got promoted from the national league with Barnet a few years ago. But we'll we'll come to that because I was at that game. Um, so yeah, Barnet two thousand and three to four as your first out of five spells, I believe. You, did, for by all accounts, you're doing really well at the start of that season. And then, obviously, towards the end of it, Brentford came calling, and this is something that obviously happened later on in your Barnet career. where Notts County went and took you, but we'll get to that in due course. Um, when you were obviously doing very well in the National League at that point in in the season, you like you could have perhaps searched for promotion and. Whatnot. Was it a hard decision to leave when Brentford came in? Granted, they're a, league, a couple of leagues above from Barnet at the time, but given the position you were in with the Bees and the positive nature of it, did you did you think it was a tough one to leave Barnet or just the, the call of Brentford too much to ignore at the time? I mean, let me just take you
1: back a little bit. Let me just take you back. When you said I joined Barnet, I was first-team coach to Peter Shreve. He was the first-team manager and I was coached Peter Shreve he used to let me do all the training but he was just to manage it and uh, he did do a great deal of work he was a big father figure to me and he helped me he had a fallout with the chairman and he rang me up one night peter about eight o'clock he said martin martin i've had enough um he said i'm leaving he said i've told the chairman to give the job to you and he said so don't even think about it take the job and all the best he said uh ring me at the end of the season and hope you do well 10 minutes later, the chairman rang me. He said, Martin, I've had a fallout with Peter. He said, I want you to do the job uh, this Saturday against Hereford, who at the time were top of the league. And um, he said, if you do, okay. He said, we'll we will have a chat about the job at the end of the season. Oh my God. I think I was about 34. Uh, I had no qualifications, I had no job, and at last I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity. I called the centre forward, who was the top goal scorer. He was the England
2: C centre forward.
1: Yeah. And this is on a Friday. All the big clubs were watching him. And I told him, on the the Thursday lunchtime, I think it was a Thursday lunchtime, but the Friday lunchtime, he's not playing, and he's not subbed. It was a Friday morning before training and that he could go home. Yeah. He looked at me and went, what? I said, I don't want you involved. You're not going to be involved. Go home, do what you like. Ten minutes later, I've got the chairman on the phone. Martin, what are you doing with, with the center forward, Junior Gogo it was, God bless him. Oh, yeah. He said, I've just had his agent on the phone and you told Junior he's not playing. He said, I've got all these clubs coming to watch him Saturday and I want to sell him. So I said, they'll come, pay for their car park and their ticket. I said, but he ain't playing. I don't want him in the team. He said, why? Why? I said, because he doesn't play for the team. He doesn't run about and he won't do what I want him to do. And I want only people in our team, our
2: team, that are going to do it for the club. And not for himself. So did, did you feel he was one of them players that perhaps was using Barnett as more of a stepping stone for himself rather than for the greater good of the club?
1: Yeah, well, he was going to be moving on anyway because he, he was a good player. But at the time, he wasn't doing it. If the chance would come to score, he'd get the ball and dribble around five people and hit it as hard as he could every time. And I didn't think it was conducive with and without the ball for him to be successful. But anyway, if playing playing for at home, Erriford at 0, top of the league, best team in the league. Graham Turner was the manager. We had 11 players defending. And we had about three players attacking. Everybody else run himself into the ground. And guess what? My first game in professional football, mm. we won one nil. The crowd went absolutely mental. Supporters after the, the players in the dressing room, we all hugged each other, we squeezed each other. I thanked every one of them. I couldn't tell them how pleased and happy I was with all of them. And I thought, this is it, this is what I love, and this is what it's all about. The chairman was waiting outside for me, and he said, Martin, he said, I think you made the right decision. So he said, it was a big call on your part to leave out our biggest player and our best player for the sake of the team he said I think we're going to do very well together
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, wonder, I wonder what the conversation I would have, have been cool. like if you hadn't won that game well if me auntie had balls it'd be me uncle we Well, there did you go. win <laughs> it so, so
1: we did win it so you could always say if this and if that we did win it the call was made it was a big call it was a brave move it was whatever move we want to call it it worked we haven't been winning we've been playing anyway so, for me, it was the right thing to do and it sent a message to all the other players. This is the standard,
2: this is what we want and this is what you do if you're going to play for Barnet. So, you did get the call from, from Brentford later on in that season. So What was it about Brentford at the time? Obviously, they were in a higher league, but was it just that or was there a bit more about on that you, you found really interesting and you wanted to move on and obviously... It, not bittersweet in the end, but in in a sense. But I'm sure when you left Barnet, you would have hoped they could have got the job done. But unfortunately, they did lose in the playoffs that year. But you did move on to Brentford. So uh, as I say, what what was it about the bees that interested you at that time?
1: Two division jump, unbelievable. You don't very often get a two division jump from. Uh, I don't like people calling it non-league from the uh, from the conference to yeah. go up to division one. Um.
2: It's just Brentford, a testament to how well you did, though, in Barnet.
1: Sorry, Barnett to, from Barnet to Brentford, uh, the two-division jump uh, is, too, is too big a jump. You can't miss those opportunities when you're in football management. Mm. If, you're, if you're not successful as a football manager, we all know, all the crowd want you sacked anyway. So... Well, on the other side of it as a manager when you do well when you get an opportunity you should make the best of it because it works both ways it's the same both ways that's obvious to everybody so um that chance to go to brentford it came completely out of the blue they hadn't won for a long time we had nine games to stay in division one uh it was nicknamed the great escape from all the brentford supporters and uh i don't think they've won for 13 games and in the nine, I think we won six, drew two, and lost one. Uh, it was remarkable to stay up and then rebuild that team in the summer to get into the playoff places and get to the fifth round of the FA Cup in our first full season was quite unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and so many of those players went on to play in the Premier League that are taken from from the lower levels to come up and train them.
2: Yeah, the lots uh, of Stephen Hunt, Jay Tau, both went to Reading as well. Actually, funny enough. Uh, Michael Turner was in there as well.
1: Yeah, Michael Turner. Uh, who else? I had Dion Burton. Of course, he was playing there. Jamie Lawrence was international. Uh, Lloyd Awusu went on to play for Ghana. Yeah. Uh, Dean Campbell, of course, with the career that he had. Uh, Andrew Frampton, the career that he had at championship level. Uh, Stuart Nelson, as you rightly uh, mentioned earlier, he's been part of uh, you know a great career. Um, and there's several others as well. You know that. Have you know you sit at home watching match of the day with a Chinese takeaway on one of your players that you've taken from non-league on 300 quid a week is playing in the Premier League and playing really well what a feeling <laughs> what a <laughs> surreal feeling you can't imagine what it's like
2: so the following seasons from that uh, great escape as you called it you went on to finish fourth in, and then third season after season in the playoffs were so beaten by Sheffield Wednesday and Swansea respectively in those in those two years Um you you put your team down as a two bob team in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. How did you come to think of that term and what was that down to exactly?
1: Oh, what? Sorry, what was
2: that last bit? Uh, you called your Brentford team of uh five the two bob team. Well i don't think it cost us
1: anything.
2: No, it's meant what was the um what was the meeting behind it in a sense? Um uh, what did I
1: called them a two bob team? Yeah. Um, was quite a long time ago and I've probably edited quite a few footballs so I can't exactly remember exactly what I meant by that. But thinking about it, it would probably be I always wanted to stay humble and I always wanted them to keep their feet on the ground and not believe in all the hype that had come so very, very quickly. Yeah. The fifth round of the FA Cup twice. Um, I'm playing Premier League club and beating Sunderland and then drawing away at Southampton. Um, all of our, mine included, all of our lives changed pretty quickly. Agents were all over everybody to move club and go and play at higher levels, go and manage at higher levels. It was, it was non-stop. And the media just loved Brentford because we were hard-working, down-to-earth
0: labs, you know what I mean? Yeah. But
1: with such a young group of players who were talented, extremely talented, you knew that it couldn't last unless they, weak at Brentford, could give them big contracts. We knew that they were going to be moving on, and that's what I found difficult. And I was exhausted as well, to be honest. I didn't think I could manage it for another season without all those good players playing in my team. I just thought it was going to be a recipe for a nightmare for me.
2: Yeah, we'll get onto that resignation the reasons for you just touched on there, but we'll talk about um, your unorthodox methods and in, in those sort of games you spoke about. Um, when I was researching, I found some two funny stories. That um, Before the game at Southampton, you uh, jumped in the River Solent before that game for reasons. And then uh, you went and swam in the River Tees before the uh, FA Cup game against Hartlepool. When we were talking to some of the players on the Gilliam side, they said you did some sort of unorthodox things in a way, like you take your shirt off in the middle of a game and you just try and distract them. Is that sort of a, a way of... Um, this, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, really. Sort of like putting all the attention on yourself, so it makes them feel less pressured, perhaps?
1: No, no, not really. The one at Hartlepool that you mentioned, um, I think it was the second game of that, what I call the great escape, the nine-game run that I had at the end of the season at Brentford. Second game away at Hartlepool. Brentford haven't won away from home all season. Hartlepool were in the playoffs I think they were third or fourth in the league Good team Um, They had lost at home all season Uh, We went up there on the Friday morning Uh, Friday afternoon We had a little walk down the driveway To the bottom of the hotel End of the road Onto the main road Crossed the main road And as we crossed the main road There was a field with a little river in it because we'd have a long journey up from, uh, from London to Hartlepool, uh, we decided that the coach, Adrian Whitbread and the physio Damian Doyle would just do, um, a gentle, uh, loosen off session, loosen off just to get their legs and bodies moving before going back to the hotel for a bath and then dinner at seven. Standard practice really with all football clubs. Anyway, I was stood about 20 yards away watching them play, um, a bit of uh, football piggy in the middle, uh, that little game. And they were doing some stretches and they were doing some dynamic stretches. And then the captain, who was a tough boy from uh, 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 Stuart Talbot, when they were doing their stretches, he said to one of the other players, I'll give you a fiver if you swim across that river. To one of the other players. And I was listening to this, I wasn't talking to anybody, straight face. And then somebody else said, yeah, I'll give you a fiver, I'll give you a fiver, I'll give you a fiver. So all of a sudden, it was up to about 25 quid to one of the other players to swim across this little river. It was only about 15, 20 yards wide. Yeah, I've been listening to this and not saying nothing, and my head starts going into overdrive. I, I said, stop, oi, 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 oi. Hold it there. If you say you're going to swim it, why don't you, word, get in, and swim it. And I stared at them with a horrible face I can have. Yeah. And uh, it was absolute silence. So to end the silence I said, if you all pay a fiver, I'll get in and swim it. And the captain said, will you? I said, if you say you're going to swim it, I'll swim it. You get the money together and I'll I'll throw it. And they went off for a jog and they're all giggling. They're all laughing like little kids as they run away all together i'm looking at the river thinking oh my god what have i put myself in for mm-hmm. i do not want to go across that river when they all came back the captain said right gaffer he said all of us are putting a pound each he said that comes up to about 27 pound including the staff and you can swim the river i said absolutely definitely right will. i will have no fear So i took my shirt off Took me socks off, took my shoes off, took my socks off, pulled my trainers back on, ran down the edge of the riverbank, crossed the little bridge, ran back along, and all my first team squad and staff were looking across the river at me. And I stood on the side of the river and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is a nightmare. (laughs) There was a little pause, I jumped in and I swam as hard as I could and as quick as I could across to the other side with every player laughing their socks off. When I got to the other side, I looked at them in fierce fighting mode and said, if you say you're going to swim it, you get in and effing swim it. And I ran off back to the hotel. When he came to dinner at 7 o'clock, I barged into their dinner at 7 because the staff used to eat at about 7.45. And I was all smart and I was all clean and well presented. And I said, listen, if you say you're going to do something, you've got to get in and do it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. The next game, the next morning, after breakfast, the physio and the coach went to a shop in Artipool called Pronto Print. Now, for the older people listening to this, they might know what Pronto Print is. It was a printing shop where you could go and get stuff photocopied or get pictures blown up or whatever it was. And they went and they bought 20, I think it's A3 size posters, bigger than A4. I think that's A3. Yeah. They went down to do the kit in the dressing room at Arlepool and they bought some blue tack and they posted all these posters inside the dressing room at Arlepool. If you say you're going to swim it, then swim it. When they came back to the hotel, those two came up to my room and said, Kather, we've done these posters, we've put them all inside the dressing room, we can take them down if you don't want them up, but it looks good what time is the meeting? So I said, no team meeting. We'll just go straight to the ground. We'll get in the dressing room. Let's go and win the game. No, no meeting. I said, no, no. All the work has been done. So we got down there and the players walked into the dressing room (laughs) and their faces when they saw the dressing room, it was like a wallpaper of A3 posters. If you say you're going to swim it, then swim it. They absolutely loved it. God
2: bless. We won two nil. That's an incredible story, actually. I, you you see, when I was researching, all it said was like you swam just swam the river. I didn't know it was so in depth as that. It's and it was just massive like mo- motivational push for your whole team and I suppose that uh, goes along with like what you've already been talking about so far in this episode about your upbringing and getting into the game and where you are now, that when, when you have your mind set on something, you we all know that you will do it and you won't take any shortcuts. You'll make sure it's done the way you want it to be done. And even that goes for even when you're not playing anymore and you're just coaching a side, you're willing to just go and swim a river just to prove a point to your team. And obviously, given you won the game, it, it worked out brilliantly, I suppose. So that's a nice fun story to involve there. Um, so when you left Brentford, you resigned in uh, May of 2006 due to the lack of backing from the board. You sort of touched on this uh, just prior that's to that. That's not true. That's right? not true. Lacking the lack of backing. they
1: have done everything they could. Um, but there was going to be no, uh, no opportunity to strengthen that team. There was not the finances in place to give those players new contracts. So it wasn't anything to do with the board. They did everything they could to persuade me to stay. I told them I needed to have a break. I needed to have a rest. I was exhausted, and I was exhausted. And the big mistake I made was not taking a longer break. After the two and a half years at Brentford, I should have, for my own well-being,
2: before joining MK Dons I should have taken a more of a break you see okay uh, yeah interesting actually that you needed that break considering the success you just had at Brentford but I suppose the way it ended up sort of makes sense but he did go to MK Dons between 2006 to 7 and they were uh, despite having a lot of money there through Pete Winkleman they were in the point of a decline weren't they they'd gone down from the championship down to League 2 at the point and you managed to turn turn them around that season. Yeah, you signed Keith Andrews. I remember the Irish player who's a quite known as quite a fan favorite down there still to to this day till he retired. And uh, yeah, so that pa- one. Pardon. Was that one on a free transfer that went on to play for Ireland the World Cup? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was in. That yeah.
1: Was exciting, that one.
2: Quite a fan favorite down there at MK Dons. Um. So you obviously you dropped to League Two through the Championship MK Dons. They were in a bit of a free fall, but you managed to turn them around and stop the decline. In a sense, you got them to a playoff final, but I mean, not playoff final, playoff semi final, but defeated by Shrewsbury. What you said, you you perhaps should have taken a longer break between the Brentford job and the MK Dons job, and, and then did did you see, did you feel like the MK Dons job sort of just. Although you did relatively well getting off to the playoffs of course, did you feel it sort of just came a bit too early for you?
1: Yeah, it probably did. It um, probably needed a break. Uh, I do work 24-7 and it's on my end 24-7 when I work. It doesn't escape me. It makes it difficult for my family life. It makes it difficult for my own health and wellbeing. Um, The MK bonds, it was a massive turnaround when I got there in my opinion I don't think I'm talking out of I'm totally wrong I've been to a game at the end of their previous season on a Sunday afternoon and I saw them play I sat in the, up in the stand as the manager of Brentford and I saw the players sitting there with sunglasses on I saw them with suits on with their
2: Interesting. I got. I can't. I wouldn't. I obviously don't know. Not being a manager or anything, but it must get. Is that sort of a rarity for you to get get called by family members like that, or does that happen more than the outsider as a fan would think? isn't this is one when I was researching your old clubs that you've managed this is one of the more interesting ones that I picked up due to just the, the madness of it and the shortness of it in the sense that you move to Leicester in 2007 well correct me if I'm wrong but from the reports I've read it seems there was a breakdown with the chairman Milan Mandaric um there was some sort of Weird episodes in a sense with signings that did or didn't happen with likes of Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and Derek Riocardin. I think I spelled, probably said that wrong. But he was uh, from Celtic and it seemed both of you wanted different things from the report. It seemed like Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was a player that three had been agreed for but then you, when he arrived, said the, the, the medical wasn't happening. And as far as Derek from Celtic goes, you you refused to put in an offer to Celtic and that... The relationship between yourself and the chairman just went, seemed to just decline and sort of came, went to a point where it was sort of unsavable and your your contract was actually terminated. Only I think three or four games in, wasn't it, in the twenty ninth of August. So what, what, what do you think that breakdown of communication was was down to exactly? And what if say what you can. If you can't say it, then that's fine. But say as much as you can as a sense about. The situation with, with Hasselbank and the Celtic player, and if this is all true to be, breakdown of communication. Of course, correct me if I'm wrong if it isn't. That's right. I think that's agent I like now.
1: Jimmy um, Floyd Hasselbank. Yeah, he tried to sign him. Um, he met him in London. I invited him up to left to do a medical. He was staying in the same hotel as what I was. I saw him when I left the uh, hotel uh, to go to the training ground. Something like quarter to eight in the morning. Him and all his mates and friends and all that and I don't really know Jimmy but I shook his hand and said hello and he said is everything okay? I said well I don't even know you're coming here but he said what? he said I don't even know you're signing for us and it had been six months uh, since Jimmy had played uh, another game Uh, his previous match was at Charlton in central midfield and he got took off at half time and i repeated that to the chairman and we already had five centre forwards we had 44 players that left signed probably about eight of them himself in the summer.
2: Not me. I didn't sign those players. For, did like you say forty-four summer? players? Yeah, forty-four players. How how so odd, how on earth do you done. manage that? Forty-four
1: players.
2: How, how how can you manage a team 44 of forty-four players?
1: players? How do I handle
2: it? Yeah, how can I, I, the amount of players like that is so like, obviously it's going to be impossible to make everyone happy. I, was, I, how do you sort of go around managing a team of that many players? Can't. Well, exactly. Not with the staff we can't. we exactly. Had, uh, the three of us were up there.
1: It was uh, mission impossible. There's absolutely no way. But the fact of the matter is, the, player, the chairman had signed these players. We played a pre-season friendly, away from home. against a little non-league club. Pardon the word, use of the word non-league. We lost. And he was knocking on the door in the room after the game. Martin, Martin, what's wrong? What, what have we got here? What have you done to the goalkeeper? bought him you paid for him and you put him on stupid wages I said you'll just have to get on you know that's what we've got I said I didn't want him and he said what about this one I said you signed him you signed him the players he signed weren't good enough and I, I'm left to carry the can. and then when it came to the, the first cup few games of the season I think we were sixth in the league when I left at the time 80 Boudreau's Watford there was 25,000 I think in the uh, in the stadium we won 4-1 beaten the top of the league team moved up to 6 in the league and he sat in 4 days later there was no way that I was going to work for a chairman like that and there was no way I was going to pick all these players just to keep him happy Um
2: definitely the one one regret in your career if you had one was probably taking that job considering how it obviously worked out i suppose it's easy to say in hindsight but moving on to 2008-9 you're at cheltenham a club managed by your father as you mentioned earlier and that was between i believe 1974 and 79 yeah that's it yeah yeah uh, so what was the appeal of cheltenham obviously did that was there more of an appeal considering your dad was there before really, but no, it was a disappointing spell for me, and the fact that I was a Cheltenham town supporter uh, made it even harder. Yeah, there was a lot of financial and squad troubles at Cheltenham and you ended up having to put, it was essentially everyone up for sale, wasn't it, which is quite a bizarre situation to be in, but how, how how was that, going through that knowing you had to basically put the whole squad up for sale and try and make the best of what you had?
1: on the training pitch I didn't know he had a suit on and a shirt
2: So was Obviously you, le- you left your role there in, in December and obviously given the the issues we just talked about it seemed like it was a pretty impossible job in some some aspects to make it work and given the, the time you had at Leicester before was that those two jobs there a bit of a period where a bit of a sticky period for you in your management career where nothing seemed to go for you at that specific point before you obviously went and got yourself back on track after that Cheltenham time? Where was it after Cheltenham? Uh, Barnet. If you, if you uh, just ask that question, yeah, it's, it's probably it's a, a, a one in five, in five chances by You've got, got 24,000 people giving your team a standing ovation. Now you're on that subject. Is that of interest? If you're allowed to say, what what sort of names were you looking at when you were at Leicester to improve that team that you you weren't allowed to get in? There's a goalkeeper that I wanted
1: to sign called
2: Paddy Kenny. Yeah, went on to Sheffield United. Had a good career, didn't he? bad targets to be fair, Paddy Kelly went on to have a good career, obviously he made Keith Andrews at, um, and Kay Donzi had a great career there, just a shame that, as you say, the relationship with the chairman just wasn't one that, that was workable in the end, but you move out to Barnet for I think your second spell, if I'm right in keeping up with that, maybe third, um, that was on a in 2011 on a eight-game contract, but again, you uh, you left before the end of that to, to go and join Notts County, this is the second time you've uh they before the end of the season to go and join another side and that obviously was Notts County pardon where did I go from there you went to Notts County oh crikey yeah big club
1: Notts County
2: yeah uh, big move that one yeah obviously massive given you know Nottingham Derby which you never probably see again but that was a great great occasion Notts County a big big club especially in the league they're in now down in the uh, in the National League the club is far too big for that division in my opinion anyway um yeah, so you went there from from Barnet, three games uh, left to join Notts County, and obviously you had Stuart Nelson in Notts County at the time, I believe, obviously you'd worked with at um, at Brentford, and when you went to Notts County, you uh, avoided relegation there, you won manager of the month for September 2011, with four wins and one draw in that five games, and then it, it sort of went to, went a bit negatively in the end, It you got sacked in February 2012 from Notts County, but... Obviously, I I know we could talk about Notts County for a while, but you know what's coming next after that, don't you? If you can remember. What? Who did you join after Notts County? Go on, you tell me. I'm going to guess uh, your fifth spell at Barnet. No, it was, of course. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. That's a long way to go yet. You obviously joined Jittingham after that, and it's taken us a while to get into Jiddingham actually. I've had such a good time discussing your career and management and playing career up to that, but this is where all the good 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 stories come out. County one, yeah, because I'm sure a lot of football fans are going to listen to this. I hope so. The chairman at Knox County was a top guy, yeah.
1: I've really got on well with him. We had a lot of work in Cyprus with his bank and whatever he he ran in Cyprus, and so his wife started to take over.
2: His wife, yeah.
1: Absolutely, checking every substitution, who's injured, who's not injured, who's training, who's not training, why are we doing this, why are we doing that, it was constant. I am not at my best when it's like that.
2: No, surely all manager wants is control of his own team. Oh my God, when that happened at Knox County,
1: my whole life changed and I loved it at that club, the people up there, the supporters up there, the passion of the people, if only they knew...
2: You know, I actually said Gillingham was next, and I I said Barnet as a joke before, but actually you actually did have another spell at Barnet between Notts County and Gillingham. I, yeah, yeah, I just missed out when I was going to do a talk about Gillingham, but you went to Barnet April twenty twelve, a couple of months after you left Notts County, replacing uh, Laurie Sanchez. And you obviously had that. This is gonna be a good a good one to talk about actually from your point of view because you had the euphoria of staying up on the last day of the season. You finished twenty second that year. Stayed up on the final day. With a two one win away at Burton Albion, I believe. Um, obviously, this is your third spell at the club at this point. And wh- how, how, where does that day rank in keeping the side you've been at twice already up in the division in the final day of the season? Where does that rank in your career highlights so far? Oh, I've got to be right up. not the italian <laughs> So have nearly given you a heart attack that game. Is that so? We obviously you get you you've had your name tag in your career as a manager. Is that everyone's seen you as a apart from when you obviously won promotion with the club will go on to your next. People do see you as a t- as a manager. who you, you want in there if you if you're in trouble of relegation. Martin Adams, a man you come to. Is that sort of like the two spells at not in Barnet? We managed to keep them up on the last day. Did you start off, start to think yourself as like I'm pretty good at this? Last day, malarkey Before you joined Gillingham, I was interested because I wanted to know this for a while. Were there any other offers before you eventually decided to join us? Did anyone else come in for you? And if so, what separated Gillingham from those clubs? brought in essentially a whole new spine that made that team in my opinion anyway so successful you know Stuart Nelson you work with at Notts County of course he came in Adam Barrett natural leader from his promotions at South End brought him in from uh, Bournemouth Dion Burton of course he have managed before He's a, he was brought in at the age of 35 Charlie Allen your son also brought in from Notts County Ben Strevens another experienced player from Wickham uh, and then Miles Weston, of course, who was fantastic that year. I think I think he's actually looking back at one of the most underrated players of that season, in all honesty, because um, people to obviously like at and and whatnot for the goals and Barrett for the leadership at the back. But I thought Weston was incredible that season, but we'll get on to him. He came in uh, from Brentford of course, and then in the January, uh, one. On late. You me on late. Yeah, they. So I was about to say he came in the January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember, he came in the January, and his first game was away at Southend. I'm pretty certain Chris Welkdale scored in, in uh, the first five minutes. I think this is in January, New Year's Day. And then uh, oh. nothing else happened to be won the game 1-0. I'm pretty certain that was Leon's debut, yeah. But uh, yeah. Stephen Gregory also come in that January as well. Looked through the loans. Of course, he brought back Cody McDonald. Uh, it was obviously a fan's favourite at the time. Antonio German came in. Tom Flanagan started the season on loan, as did uh, Robbie Finley. I think. Roman Vancello joined midway through, and so did Anton Robinson. There's a lot of players we get to get through here, I forgot about most of them. But, um, yeah, so this was the first title we'd won in, in 50 years, and I'll, I'll say this to you now as a fan, I'm sure everyone reciprocate. this is, I'm 21 now, I, you know, we won promotion at Wembley in 2009, I remember that obviously, and we also beat Wigan at Wembley back in the 90s, but that was a bit before my time, so... I I put this down as by far and away the most enjoyable season I've had supporting Gillingham. So thanks for that, first off, and um, yeah, it was it was it was one that I I can look back at the highlights on and never get bored. We the team we had that season. I've, I was talking about this with obviously the players that are in it, lots of uh, Adam, Matt, and um, Stuart, and they they all knew that. You know, Nelson said that he 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 thought he'd get promoted at the start of the campaign. You also, everyone, you sort of said the same message actually in regards to you. They all said the first time that you all met as a team, you were insistent, you were getting promoted and I remembered, or you wanted to get promoted I should say. I remember your first interview actually after you got the job and you said the challenge of taking a team from just outside um, just outside the playoffs to challenges, challenging to a champions is an exciting one. And, arguably not one you've been used to, especially not in recent years with the relegation battles you've been having. So what was it about about Gillingham essentially and and the challenge that excited you so much? I thought they had some
1: good players. Uh, They finished eighth in the league.
2: Yeah, Um, two years in a row we did that. Yeah, just outside the playoffs. I I think they conceded 57 goals the season before, conceded. Take your word for it. And it, <laughs> and it, it was uh, it was quite clear that they needed
1: uh, a new goalkeeper, uh, centre backs, and a central midfield player. Quite obvious. Yeah. Uh, um, that meant changing the holding midfield player, which was a good player. Jack Payne he was a good player. Jack. Yeah. But I also knew that Jack had, uh, and his agent had eyes of going elsewhere and getting a good money
2: in and it was big money for Jack mm. Peterborough it wasn't it in David Wright on a free transfer on loan uh, that's
1: nothing but the deal for Jack really was uh, was a great deal for the club and for Jack of course because he's gone on to have a really good career um, I, I, knew, I just knew with those players I, I knew all those players and I knew what they could bring and then obviously with the emergency yeah Charlie Lee I know he would win us games definitely win us games uh, Miles Weston I know he could help win with the pace that he's got and then with uh, Kedwell and Burton I mean that is a strong uh, they are they're strong centre forward mentally as well as physically as well as skillfully yep yeah.
2: certainly did that and it worked i'm gonna i'm gonna run you through a few a few games that that's a, a few of my favorite games from that season some of the most pivotal in that season so you'd obviously just just come off the back of beating bristol city 2-1 in your league cup you come into the the first game of the season at priesthood your first open game of course uh as manager where you host Bradford city at home danny kedwell scores an audacious first goal that game that like little like yeah, like some, somehow managed to chip the keeper from an almost like, impossible angle on the he, oh, right hand side. Yeah, still to this day, I'm not sure how he how he got that so spot on. And then um, he he scores a penalty in the second half. I think Naki Wells pulls one back for them before Miles rounds it off in a in a just injury time. I think. And even though it's the first game, that's sort of the the time where I remember me and my friends. He went at the time, and then you see a lot on social media that time. They look at that just in one game. and think we we we've got a team here we were that impressive and Bradford it was a good Bradford side at that time of course and as I mentioned there Naki Wells obviously a um, championship player now was obviously had a bit of pedigree, pedigree back and then and we just we just knew there's something on that opening day I don't know what it was and it's I suppose it's easy to say now if I just come out and say I knew we'd be champions that day because it obviously happened but I didn't think that I just knew that this team had something about it and it was something that we perhaps lacked in the last two years and this comes from the players you brought in I think you didn't just bring in um bringing numbers he brought in players that made the difference and I think of the likes of Adam Barrett who was so solid that season and you know I think the likes of Dion Burton who, who come in and did his job did the same job he's been doing his whole career and that's putting the ball in the back of the net and I think him and Kedder's got about um I think it's like 29 goals between them that season I think which is good to show good a good partnership it is and I just remember that, that Bradford game it just it, it stays with me for some reason, not just because of the the matter of the goal Cathedral well score, but it's because I I believed early on that we were on route to doing something, and that was obviously coming off the back of a of a great win in the uh, League Cup prior against uh, Bristol City. So, so, talk me talk me through what your what your emotions are, and knowing it's your first home game as a manager, and what are you thinking. I know obviously you know we know you don't get nerves at this point from what we've spoken about so far, but what was the excitement level was that like when you're walking out onto onto Priestfield for the first time.
1: Humble. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> pretty arrogant so we had to go and relay that back to all the other players and I stuck by it and I stayed with that and it wasn't until the last couple of months of the season where it started to get a bit edgy and it yeah. a bit tight and a bit tight and we'd lost right, obviously because so we didn't get his loan putting in time but we struggled a little bit and we didn't quite have that fluency which happens at all clubs yeah, that time of year always does so
2: yeah we, it's we impossible to go for a whole season without a little blip It's almost impossible for a team, no matter how good your old seasons go through the old campaign, without a slight blip at some point. It's just natural, isn't it? a few goals as well didn't they? so yeah, some, in some games that season I think about Bristol Rovers at home Aldershot at home and even some games just won, won one 0 it just felt as though at some points the game was over after five minutes because we were absolutely suffocating teams they could not get out to save their lives they were just camped inside their own half because we wouldn't allow them to play we would just suffocate the life out of them and they couldn't get out and it was almost like a we're we watching the game as fans and like five minutes in we think yeah we're winning this one even if we haven't scored yet because it's the amount of pressure we put teams under and the, the fact is people came to Priestfield knowing they weren't going to be allowed to play and they'd have to put in a hell of a performance to get someone out of that and more times than not they, they're left with nothing and that obviously was proven because we won our first uh, I think it was our first ten games wasn't it we won the league and we um we were absolutely flying, and then I think we lost to Rochdale at home. I think it was two one that day, and that was our first loss. But we we bounced straight back from it. And it's just that mentality the whole whole way through the season that I've, that you you've gelled into the players. Even thinking back to that story you were telling about, you know, everyone having to be locked inside their hotel rooms at a certain time. It's that sort of that sort of leadership you had where people know their role straight away, where even a deficit like, like a loss, as rare as it was that season, made no real impact. And the next game I want to bring you to is the home game against Port Vale, when I think we were first, they were second, and they beat us that day to go above us. And that was a, obviously a pretty big crowd that day at Priestfield. We knew, even though that, the title obviously, obviously wasn't going to be decided on that day, but we knew how big a game it was and we, we came up short that day. Kedwell scored another great goal that day, a little chest turn volley But even even though we lost that game, like the emotions after it must have been disappointment, but it must have been the message, I suppose, of keep doing what you've done all season to get us where it was. And we went we went on to win the next game and they lost there, so it's like that game never happened. It's just that that mentality that we once we were down, you knew we weren't going to stay down we were going to straight back up again. So... What, what do you think in terms of like mental mentally for the players and the management team that season what what made you all so strong and made you believers in yourself in a sense um
1: okay you ready for this go on when I was eight years old playing in park football in Reading it was drilled into me by my dad so the stories that I told you earlier in this nice chat we're having on this way day in this lockdown, they all came from when I was a little boy. Mm. Deal with it. Deal with it. Deal with it. The abuse of, dog's abuse I used to get when I was a little boy that I spoke to you about earlier. The setbacks of losing a game. I lost the cup final when I was eight, playing an under-11 football against a team called Cromarsh. And I remember going in the dressing room after the game and crying behind the door I was only a little boy. i was crying because I've lost. I've never ever thought I'd lose. Never. To lose that game. I've never, I, can, I can remember the feeling now. The manager had to take me outside to my dad and say, look, he's too upset. I hated losing. I hated, hated, hated it. And I was in it. it was, I was like it when I was a little kid. But with that group of players, I knew that we'd have setbacks. That was the only time that the whole season where they went top, wasn't it, when they beat us?
2: Yeah. Only for a week, mind.
1: Yeah, but the
2: game that they beat us—yeah—it was only because the referee blew early. Mm. They just ran out of time. They were lucky. I remember. I just remember that game, and we knew what was riding on it. But we, as I said just before, we knew that a setback isn't one that you know past Gillingham sides in that position. A loss like that might have suffered them too much, and they might have fallen off the ball but we knew with that squad there was something like the leaders in that team like the Barrett's and Nelsons we knew that they won't take that and just let it let, let, let that one game define how their season's going to finish because we could have easily with a weaker mentality lost that game let it have it affect the rest of our season we could have finished in the playoffs or maybe even lower but we we, we stuck with it and we were top again the week later following um, Port Vale's loss I think and we won the game and another game I want to bring you to this is um, probably in. Oh, I'd say it's um, definitely up there with um, one of my favorites. I'm sure it's going to be uh, one of yours as well. So that game when we played Torquay at home, that was a nice day, wasn't it? Nice sunny day at Priestfield. We knew what was um, what was at stake that day, and all the hard work paid off. Well, we, I've asked a few players this, and I, I won't tell. I'll tell them what they said after you give me your answers to see if it matches up. But going into that game, knowing that we needed a win for promotion against Torquay, what was your final message to the players before walking out there? I didn't give any messages to them. That's what they said. I didn't do that. I didn't do do no team talks. Malcolm done the team talks, the kit man.
1: Yeah. When I read in the summer that the all-blacks, the rugby all-blacks from New Zealand The team talks are done on the training pitch through the week. Because it's old-fashioned to think about a team talk.
2: He's still a man. He's still our kit man now, and hopefully he'll be doing it for as long as he's got left working there. I, well, I think he's got—he's a legend in his own right at the club, Malcolm. He's been there for so long, and um, so. Do you know Apple with Malcolm? Pardon? Do you know what happened with Malcolm in France? No. He loves. He loves the club. He loves everyone. We all love him. He's Is a proper legend at the club, and hopefully, he's is still at the club for many years to come. And just make sure you you, <laughs> you make sure he's, he's fit to the, do the job next time. Um, so yeah, back to the Torquay game. We put so much work into that season. It all came down to this. The first the first part of it, anyway. First part of the two the two part plan, if you like. And um, we also Torquay at home. Danny Kedwell scores a winning goal. And my emotions during that game were—I felt like I was having a heart attack myself because it was a bit of a, as you were saying earlier, near the end of the season, we were a bit of a tricky period. We weren't blowing teams away and stuff. We were getting the job done in some games, and some games we were a bit floundering a little bit in our performances. But this Torquay game, we we got the goal early second half we kicked Danny, and then um, I was starting to get the get the excitement in me in my blood, in my veins. I was ready for it. I was ready for the celebrations then. You know, the longer it, it feels like um, the last five minutes of a game like that, where it's 1 0, feel like half an hour. And um, I believe they hit the bar in the last minute or something like that. And it felt like it was, we might just about make it. And then obviously the final whistle blows. And oh, it was absolutely euphoric in the, in the rain and mend. I know it's a bit, probably a bit different for yourself because your mentality is probably like, I want to celebrate, I want to go crazy now. But you know, in the back of your mind, this is only part one of the challenge. You you're doing, doing yourself a disservice if you didn't then go and go and do part two. But the, what was your, what were your emotions like when that full time whistle went? You obviously, obviously maybe couldn't celebrate as well as you wanted to because you knew the the grand plan wasn't completely finished yet because we weren't mathematically champions. But you must have felt immense pride and satisfaction at that point. Oh, very proud! Do you know what? I was so
1: proud of all those players and all the staff. John Schofield, Carl Moulton, James Russell, Gary. I was so proud, Malcolm, so proud of everybody, the way they'd all contributed. I was happy that obviously we got promoted, happy. But when the players came in, he locked the door straight away. No one was allowed in. Everyone sat down, very quiet. And I said, well done. But I want to be a champion.
2: Yeah. I want to be a champion. Is it true you uh you offered you offered the first team players the opportunity to have the uh the youth team or the fringe players play the next game? And you basically said, "Do you want to be champions, or shall I play the kids in the next game?" Yeah. Well, I I, I like to think everyone said they want to be champions. There wasn't that one odd one in the middle. Went actually, I don't mind playing. But uh, yeah, it's a so as you were saying, you you, you sat him down in the changing room. You talked to him about them wanted to be champions and. What 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 was the overall feel and emotion after that? Because you knew at that point that you'd done the first part of the job. But as you as you were saying, there is now it's now time to finish finish what we came here to do.
1: Owen, I always uh, I've been I've lived by this. You
2: ready?
1: Yep. It's good to go up. It's great to be a champion.
2: Of course.
1: And that was a philosophy, if you want to call it a philosophy kind of used all the way through I don't want to go up I want to be a champion I want to be a champion <laughs> it would have been it's just like I was just I'll desperate to be champion Those people get get promoted most of them most of the managers get promoted most players get promoted there's not many to be champions no And we going to be different are we going to be special and oh my god we
2: were we well. were you, you you remember the play you remember the team who wins promotions but you never forget the team who wins the title and that day came via an away game at Cheltenham which I did go to and we lost so we didn't win the title that day but you know I still had a good day out Cheltenham's a nice place I suppose and um, <laughs> yeah we 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 spoke to a couple of players Danny Kedwell and uh, Danny Kedwell said that um, when I mentioned that I went to Cheltenham he basically said oh we uh, lost there on purpose just so we could win it at home and I like to think that wasn't the truth but. I think it worked out better for everyone that we did get it done at home and that was uh, against AFC Wimbledon, of course, the day where we all finally got to celebrate as wildly and as enthusiastically as we wanted to without without the thoughts of we still got a job to do because we knew it was fully done. 2 up at half-time, I think it was. Dion Burton and Kedwell against his former club getting the goals. Happy days. We're all we're all loving it. It's a part of the atmosphere in the crowd. I know for you, down the dugout, you're still... Probably not hundred percent there until you know you're hundred percent there. In the second half, I think we only needed a point that day. I'm pretty certain. Uh, second half they get one back, and then you start to think that you know they still need two more goals for us to, for us to slip up a bit here. Not it's gonna be fine. Then they get a the second. And then you're thinking, oh Jesus, oh no, and you start to you start to think like, surely this isn't gonna happen. And I think I think they came really close to actually getting a win in the end. I think. I think they might have hit the bar or something near the end of the game, but thankfully, pardon, hit the post. yeah, hit the post, and yeah, we started to think that after all of this, it might be a uh, going to the final day again, which should have been no, no strange thing for you, obviously, given your your last day of Roots at Notts County and Barnet, bar- 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 but the full time whistle was blown, the the match was over, the season was um, the aim for the season was complete with the title. We were champions of E two for the first time in fifty years. I think I, I I ran on the pitch. It took me about a couple of minutes because I had to actually take in what just happened. Like sort of a little moment to myself, maybe a little tear. I'm not. I'm man enough to admit. And I think that um, it was just one of them where we 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 finally knew what had happened, and it sort of takes a while to sort of sink in. I know there's that great video of um, of yourself going up out dugout, looking up towards Paul Scadding. You know, giving him the giving him the sign of approval, like, yeah, both looking at each other like, you've brought me in to do a job, I've done the job, now we can all celebrate. Obviously, everyone runs on the pitch, and it must have been like a whirlwind of emotion, because I spoke to some players, and they said they can't even remember what it was like, when the full-time whistle went, because it was so, like, people were on the pitch straight away, I didn't really have time to really notice what would happen, just complete euphoria. And what is, what is it like for you as a manager when that full-time whistle blows, and, You get the satisfaction of knowing not only are you promoted, but you are champions. The aim you wanted to do, you've achieved it.
1: (laughs) Well, you wake up about half past four in the morning. And uh, on the Saturday morning, you walk the dog. Monty. Yeah, God bless him. And you walk the dog again. And just try and pass the time. And then I used to take myself down the waterfront where that swimming pool was down there.
2: Yeah.
1: And I used to walk along there just to pass the time. Um, my mind used to be totally focused on the game. When it all finished, the last twenty minutes was difficult because the players clearly were exhausted. The nervous energy made their legs go to jelly. Nothing. Because the manager, you can do about that. No. They've given everything. They knew what was ahead, and mentally, when they get into that position
2: and that state, that's very, very difficult. We see it with top Premier League clubs and England players. It's not just our players. It happens part of life. I suppose it's also key to remember. Actually, it wasn't just us who had state. You know, Wimbledon obviously had the relegation trouble, so they needed to win as well. So it was two teams who needed the results. it wasn't exactly a dead rubber where you can just run over someone and get what we needed so they made it a tough game as well and obviously that that aided to the jelly legs as you say and yeah so carry on from what you were saying there as added that in well when, when I remind you when the Barnet team played away at Burton yeah. in the first half my Barnet team played with jelly legs and they could not lose their legs they did not perform in the second
1: half the Barnet team did play well well this is the other way round the Gillingham team played superb in the first half and then they knew what they had in their hands. They knew what would run it, was would really had it in And the second half, we just to see it through. But as soon as you do that, and as you rightly say, Wimbledon and the first half were awful. Mm. In the second half, they were superb against us. Absolutely superb. But we couldn't get near them. And there was nothing I could do from the technical area. You can't make players run when their legs have gone to jelly. And their mind is all fuzzy or hazy. But when, it, when it's over and the final whistle went, you know, people like, and I mentioned John Schofield and Carl and uh, James Russell and all the work that we all put in. Um, and then to see the players in the dressing room afterwards, when we really got into the dressing room, it um,
2: was an amazing moment. Amazing, okay. never to be forgotten. Yeah, I remember you coming into the the factory as it was now. I might have had, not been still called Blues back then. I'm not sure, but a little pub inside the ground. You came in there, did your little speech after the game, and I was there to witness that. And it was just, it was just incredible. I mean, I, I remember it all so well. You know, the champagne was flying. It was a very very proud moment for the club. Very proud moment for yourself. And it's, obviously, it's it's one of them where I'm I'm never going to forget it. And you you racked up the rewards of it as well. I think three of our players, I think it might have been Nels, Adam and Joe, got in the PFA, the 2 team of the year. Uh, wow. You won the League 2 manager of the year. We broke the record for the most away wins in a season and that, I think that was after a 1-0 win at Chesterfield where I think Cody scored a, a backheader from a corner that day and we we were just, it's just a season where it'd be hard to replicate but um, yeah, it's one we can look on with fantastic memories. I want to, well to talk for a couple of stories that I've heard from ex-players who've sort of done you in, and want to get your opinions on them. So, <laughs> th- on, so first one's uh, from Chris Welpdale and he he's, he told us a little story about how um, you always used to cycle from from the ground to and Cross, the training ground in the morning prior to a training session, of course. And uh, you got there one morning, and uh, I think you think think you said they were doing crossing drills, of heading drills, and someone's someone's gone off for a header, uh, has completely missed it. You've You've like like a bit like you said earlier, really. If you, if it's almost like an mentality. If you want something done, do it yourself. Goes up like the swimming thing before that Brentford game, of course, and you showing people how it's done. You you said that's not how you read the ball. You you come into the penalty spot with your um, with your bike helmet hat still on, and then they whipped a ball into, you and you've gone you've gone flying to win the header. Apparently, this is where Nelson comes in because I asked him about this as well and he said you've landed like on your back and nearly like, dislocated your shoulder by doing it. <laughs> it's
1: true. It's true. I ended up with, my, with the bicycle bicycle helmet on, yeah. And as I landed, oh my God, too many, um, too much uh, too much weight and just took the whole thing. All the players absolutely loved it. And it took me about 10 minutes to recover. Uh, but they
2: loved it. It made them laugh and... Uh, and that's a special attribute. you can make your people laugh. It, it goes a long way,
1: I think.
2: Yeah, it's a shame the other didn't actually go in apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what crazy times remembering of me. Yeah, we've got we've got another one. This is just uh, one I from... Got uh, well the uh, ones I've I've only asked one from each actually. We got one from uh, Kedwell and then we got one from Nelson said so, Danny Kedwell said you were once um I think it's prior to an away game and you're doing like a morning walk through this sort of like farmyard area or something, and you've walked past a donkey and you've gone Danny and he pointed to Donkey and you said, Danny, what are you doing over there? <laughs> and he, he says he said that everyone all the players were looking at Danny thinking he's gonna go off on one it. Cause he actually he said he he said he didn't want to give you the satisfaction at the time. <laughs>
1: I had that, um, because of the different style of play, and I'd also seek a lot of help after Knox County about managing myself privately and publicly and with staff of men. I I undertook a lot of management help as in um, one-to-one tuition for dealing with people situations to try and improve myself, with that squad of players, one of them called me one day, Uncle.
0: Mm.
1: And I couldn't think of a better um, description of how I would want to be for a football team nowadays. No, no players, no group of players has ever called me an uncle-type figure. They would have always said to me, they said
2: hard, task master, tough, nasty, uh, on top of them all the time, in fear. That lot were not in fear. Well, I had a great relationship with all of them. Yeah, we saw that. It's just seemed the relationship throughout the time is like it's so tight-knit. It's also like you were manager like you're prepared to have all the banter with the players, but once it was time to work, it was time to work, and that, that balance is sort of what makes the team so successful. In some senses, we'll go through a couple now. A couple of last ones. This is just, this isn't the story I was told. Just one that's pretty much common knowledge to anyone who's uh, seen a video. If I if I mention Scunthorpe, I'm in the FA Cup. Do you know where I'm going with that? So I think he was, I think, to go on for making the substitution, you've, you've, you've attempted to walk down the, about four stairs, I think he was actually, to bark out orders wearing wearing your bright bright red Santa Claus trousers, and then, um... Oh, he, where's the Santa Claus trousers come from? Pardon? Where's the Santa Claus trousers come from? Your wardrobe, I assume. <laughs> it's not much we've got to do with Santa Claus. There's not. You've got to give me a minute. Then you've you've come you've you've come walking down the stairs and you you've completely stacked it to be fair to you you've 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 gone way way off the mark and you've the way the way you are it just doesn't surprise me at all you you fall straight on the floor and then you get up nonchalantly as if as if nothing's ever happened not looking up in the air thinking, assuming that like someone else has done it and it's not you and it's just one of them small small moments of comedy you can take I think we were falling up at the time or three and up we were coasting either way and it was just. One of them like like relief moments of like I, I remember from seeing the video, and the last one Stuart Nelson told us is um so do with you leaving jelly babies on the floor and then going to pick them up and then eating them, and then one day they've they've planted jelly babies on the on the on the floor to sort of like maybe trick you into going getting them and then pull one of them all away you so looked a bit silly at the end. I did used to drop wine gums, Malcolm used
1: to get me a box of wine gums. Eat nervously. Mm. And sometimes I'd drop the wine gums and they'd fall onto the dirty floor and I would just pick them up as though nothing had happened and start eating them. But they all used to smile and it used to make them laugh. That's why I did it. Uh, so, yeah, that is true. Nelson, did he pull them away? Um, if I was in a rage, he wouldn't have probably dared pull them away. <laughs> um, going back to the trousers, why did I do that? In the place, that
2: game and we won didn't
1: we it a game it? They division above us. yeah they were I told the players scumthorpe was shit <laughs> I wasn't allowed
2: to say that So crap and that we would beat them and that they could go out and express themselves and play great football
1: they're rubbish just, just they're rubbish it definitely it's worked scumf- they all come in at half past one, and they all start getting changed, and Malcolm would normally do his team talk about 20 to 2. So I came into the dressing room just after half past one with my white t-shirt on and red trousers, my smart black shoes, and they all just looked up and laughed. They just (laughs) thought it was hilarious. And I said, hold on a minute, if you're going to go out onto the dance floor, you've got to put some sort of effort in, and you've got to year on to get on the dance floor and show that you can play good football and this is why I've got my dance gear on you know, Just get out and play when that happened and that came out on the video all the players thought it was hilarious and the subs and the people that are sitting around me in the technical area, they thought it was hilarious but what they don't know even to this day when I went down, I took a proper hit because you can imagine your body weight you know when you go yeah, down, yeah. down you're your body weight it hurts my knee, and underneath my knee, it was bleeding and it was sore. But those trousers were too tight; I couldn't do nothing, and I couldn't get past them for instant treatment. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a bloody nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Yeah, that's why I wore them. And when I came out past the corner flag, out into the stadium, I didn't walk along the path. I walked out onto the pitch, and again, it was a it was to, it was a message to the supporters. We are good. We can wear anything. We can. It was a positive, not a scaredy attitude. It was like I can walk with confidence, proud of my players, knowing how well they're going to play. And they're going to entertain the Gillingham fans this afternoon. And my God, what a performance that was against Gunswell.
2: was absolutely battered them, I think. Yep, yeah, 4 Neil, I'm trying to think of the goal score, sock me head. Yeah, I don't know. I think Kedder's got one from the penalty spot. I think Adam Birchall got the fourth. Uh, I want to say Joe Martin got one, maybe Miles Weston as well. I have to look that up at some point. But we're, we're just before we move on to the following season, which was your final final season at Jules or half season. Um, I just want to know, obviously, where where does that season rank? Is it is it potentially your biggest ever achievement in your managerial career? Winning and being champion. Yep. Oh, it's the number one since I started playing when I was eight. <laughs>
1: Including my football career, which was, a, which was a good career considering I was just an okay player. I mm. wasn't okay a great player. It was just um, that season was quite unbelievable. I had so much belief in the players, my staff, the supporters I thought were awesome behind the team, the atmosphere that we created.
2: really I mean, was. Or well, a team of basically What? To, I Not planned yet. I haven't
1: back
2: yet. I think there should be something for the end uh, of the 10 year anniversary of it. that Maybe twenty, 20 three. But That seems a bit long. I I'm, I think we should all, we should invite the squad back at some point definitely to watch us win a game, hopefully win a game anyway. I think Fishy said that the other day as well that he's open to be invited back with the rest of the team, to you know celebrate what it was. I think you you'd be welcome back in open arms by literally everyone yeah. fan favourite here of course. Um, I've got a couple of friends where I live that are supporters, and um, you know we always reminisce and talk about the time like we have done this afternoon. Hm. I'll just get in contact with Paul Scully. We'll make that happen. Soon as we, soon as we get over this virus first game back, we'll get your estate sorted. Don't you worry about that. Now, I want to... We we'll need to move on because we've been on, on the phone for like two and a bit hours now. I said it'd be two hours for you, but still got... we got a, We'll finish on talking about your final season at Gillingham and then we'll do some Twitter questions. I don't want to keep you massively long. I already have, but time flies and all that. Um, yeah. So, the following season... Um, we, we we only won, I think it was two out of our first 11 games. You brought in uh, it's a good set of players. I think We've got Cody McDonald permanently. Akin Fenway was also previously at the club before he, he came back and formed, rejoined his partnership with Cody. Um, this season's a bit of a weird one to me, for the time you were there anyway, because throughout Garry's uh, reign, has been known to give uh, managers quite a lot of time. Some, some who didn't deserve it, in my opinion, but... That's for another time, and I feel like you when you were sacked in October, and I think a lot of Gillingham fans think this way as well. We think you weren't you weren't given enough time. I think October, in in the start of a new season, is no time really, and I think I want I want to get your viewpoint on on what why the season didn't necessarily start as well as it should have done because you think the key thing after a promotion is that you start the season the same way you well. The same way you ended the last one. but I suppose in 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 this funny sense, actually, that's kind of what we did because our form at the end of last season, towards the towards end of it, wasn't the greatest, and maybe maybe we 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 went off our roots perhaps because you know I don't want to say we were we were a long ball team, but we like playing the balls up down the wings and ride to you know Kellers and Dion Burton, and that seemed to work for us. And I think Rotherham had a similar thing where they punted forward to Ravel, and they obviously um, got promoted that season in League One. So maybe we 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 changed the way we played and it to sort of suit the division. It didn't quite work out. So what what was your your thoughts on why the season didn't particularly start as well as you'd hoped?
1: He wants to do is his money, his money and if he decides that's the way forward for him and his club I always have to respect it and I always do
0: yeah. he never
1: interfered with any player recruitment he never interfered with uh, players coming in or going out the one player he helped me with he suggested to get in was Cody McDonald When I was looking for centre forward to, uh, to, to for January uh, Mr Scully suggested Cody McDonald I didn't really know Cody so I've always, always publicly credited Mr Scally with uh, with that one. So I was open, of course, to the owner's suggestions on players here and there. On team selection, players in and out never, ever interfered. Um, of course, with the run that we had, it wasn't... Um,
0: Awesome. <laughs>
2: Of course, it was a difficult League One that year as well. I remember a, a press conference from you after a game. I think we'd lost four 0 at Wolves, and the report was mentioning about I think it was some guy called Sigurdsson, some Icelandic fellow who was worth about two point five million at the time. You know, like Kevin Doyle was worth about four point million. It was just sort of the the numbers that I think when you heard that yourself, you couldn't quite believe it, could you? Those are the sort of calibre players and the sort of wages we were up against in that division. Go to talk about your sacking. I think we the, it was an odd timing, in my opinion, because although the record at that point wasn't that amazing, we had just won two games on the bounce. I think it was crew away, we beat 3 0, then we beat MK Dons at home by three goals to two. Then we went and lost to uh, Shrewsbury, and that ended up being being your last game. And it felt like because I was talking to Nelson, he said the timing felt weird for him because he felt as though we'd just turned a corner results wise. But albeit we did lose that game against Shrewsbury but the the two before we won back to back and it seemed like we were slowly but surely getting somewhere and then it obviously kind of puts the players back to square one in a sense because the manager's gone and they have to now get someone else in who's going to have new ideas and 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 go from there but you know as, as you say it is football but I want to talk about how difficult it was for you finding out because obviously I'm pretty certain you were, you were doing a BT sport game for Barnet I believe at the time I think you, were, you you received a text was it about 10 minutes before half time in that game and then you had to you had the conversation with Paul and then you had to come straight back out to to do the half time review it must have been a really really tough situation to get yourself through after hearing that news <laughs> yeah, it was a
1: bit strange having just been sacked and you've got to stand in front of a live interview yeah. it was a bit weird. but hey ho, it's never a good time he wasn't to know that I was doing that, uh, that TV programme and scouting on Barnet um, that's part of life and again no complaint. That's how it's going to be done. Um, you know, you could tell it would have been nice to be called into the office and shake hands and say well done. But in the in the business that I'm in and that we're in, it's cutthroat. No complaints. Just get on with it and deal with it. And it's their prerogative. It's their blinking money, and they can do what they want with it. Hmm.
2: Did you feel as though, in a sense, you 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 still had more to give to Gillingham at that time, or did you did you feel in the back of your mind that? a decision like that might have been coming. And was there, although you obviously respect the decision, which is very noble of you, did you, did you was there a bit of you that felt like you, with a bit more time you could have been on to something a bit better with the team in that season, considering we had seemed to just be turning our form around at the time? We were turning the form
1: around. And what happens, and you'll see this most years, is teams that get promoted... in form, it happens a lot we had our different form after the euphoria of winning the league, we didn't know where to aim for, we didn't have any goal setting because we didn't know whether we could get into the playoffs we didn't know whether we were going to be fighting relegation, so we were all going into it a little bit kind of in the not in the dark but in a bit like, what are we aiming for the players, some of them, weren't good enough overcoming being champions and going through some of those games where they'd be nervous whether they could deal with it at that level, we were starting to see the signs of improvement. Hmm. If it wasn't enough for the owner, that's fine. No problem. And I never, ever have a problem with the owners for sacking me. Because when better things have come my way, I've gone my family financially and also improve my opportunities so I've never ever complained about someone sacking me
2: no I suppose that makes sense as you talk about you do what's best for you in your career and your prerogative Um, my family yeah exactly um, that's a big
1: difference my family I have to do what's best for my family and for football clubs and the people that have got Gillingham tattooed on their arm and wear a Gillingham shirt every day on Saturday mornings to go to their games is different for when you work for the club as a manager, to when you support a club, and you've got blue and white blood pumping through your veins on a match day.
2: Yeah, it was it was a tough season for you to deal with, of course. But in 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 the beginning of it, you obviously had the, the harsh reality of um, well, for Matt Fish anyway, he was a player you obviously mentioned was so good the season before and. He had, he had that heartbreaking injury in the first game of the season just coming off the back of being a champion and then his his whole season's over and over in the first game. And that is obviously a, a key part, a key member of your title winning campaign. He's out, he's out for the rest of the season. That's obviously a big chunk taken away and it does make the job a bit more difficult. But just to finish on your Gillingham, your Gillingham time before we end on some Twitter questions... But, just sum up for us as, as fans, your experience with Gillingham and and how how influential it was on, on your career and your life. On my life, yeah. uh, it's,
1: it's been a highlight. It's um, a highlight of my footballing career. Like I said earlier, I wasn't a really good player, but I tried my best as a player to make the best of my ability that I had. And I had limited ability. It was only mainly through hard work. I got to have a decent career at a decent level and to go into management and be known as a firefighter type management and be successful uh, it's got to be said in, in saving a lot of clubs from relegation um to move into chatham dockyard with my wife and build that team and build the spirit within amongst the supporters and the people um it's been amazing absolutely amazing i will never ever forget my highlight was walking out onto the pitch to be presented with a trophy first person out on that corner flag to walk out in front of all those Stillingham fans i will never ever forget that moment it was unbelievable
2: just before we get on to the Twitter questions, just thought of this in terms of proud moments. What was the feeling like when you saw Charlie score his first goal for the team? Uh, I was OK with uh, separating Charlie
1: um, from everybody else and everything else. I was I was absolutely 100% professional. Charlie's a fantastic athlete. And with that team, when it came to the big games, if uh, if you check it out, he often played a part in the big games Uh, because of his mobility and his athleticism, and he had a big heart. When he scored, of course I was proud, um, but once again, it wasn't who scored, well done Charlie, I've got a tear rolling down my face. Mm. It was uh, how are we going to win this game, how are we going to win this game, get in possession, get in position, ready for your next tackle, so we can win this game. It wasn't about my own son and I think if anything I treated differently to everybody else and kept him at a distance
2: yeah of course we'll get, before we finish off we'll get end on a few questions we got from Twitter that we can just run through with you quickly Martin and start with a slightly interesting one actually in terms of in terms of um, how you would rank yourself against these two uh, Darren Chandler says if he, if you had to choose which one would you prefer to face in a boxing match Adam Barrett or Danny Kedwell i will take Kedwell
1: anyway
2: Oh, I don't know. After calling him a donkey, he's probably got it in for you already. What do you mean, you don't know? Well, oh, I don't know. He's not, a, he's not a small lad, is he, Danny? He's a tough boy. Yeah, but you asked me. You didn't ask you. Who do you
1: want to take on? Adam, Bar- Adam Barrow or Danny Kedwell? I'll take Kedwell.
2: Do you think you'd beat him,
1: though?
2: Yeah, of course I would. What, Danny what? Kedwell? Yeah, all right. well, if you say so. <laughs> sure we can get that arranged. Like Nothing. So we can get it. Oh, we spoke oh, to him recently. We can arrange that if you like. Um, no, thank you. Huh? No, thank you. No, <laughs> <Hello, Daddy. laughs> To arrange it, you've asked the question. What's the next question? Danny Kedwell. Um, Barry Davis says, "Who was the most influential player in that title-winning team?" That
1: is a good question. Mm. Um. Owen, we had. You ready for this? Yeah. Dion Burton, Danny Kedwell, Adam Barrett, uh, Stuart Nelson. And I had those four players. I think there may have been one more. I had those four players as a committee. I spoke to those players all the time in my office with a closed door about what training we should do, what we need to do, what I need to do and how we're going about things. And all four of them contributed honestly. Nothing they said to me ever went out of my office. Nothing I said to them was to go out to the players unless I let them know that I wanted it to go to the players. So I've got to say, those four were influential. The one person that doesn't ever get a mention that was influential, because he was funny, he was a great laugh, was Tommy forecast?
2: Oh yeah, big Tommy, remember him.
1: <laughs> Tommy Tommy used to make everybody laugh. He was dry sense of humour. I don't know what he was like as a goalkeeper, I have no idea. But <laughs> behind the scenes, he was influential.
2: I can only remember him playing a couple of games. I think he played in the Burton one at the end of the season when we'd all won the league, and I think... I Think um, Nelson got sent off away at Accrington and he had to he had to come on for the last half hour or so of that game, I think. So it's off the top of my head. Um Lee Clifton We all love we all love, everybody in that squad will say we
1: all love Tommy Forecast, without a shadow of a doubt.
2: It's an interesting one, I'm not maybe we'd have thought of that. shows how tight knit the squad is then.
1: Yes, it was very tight. They're like brothers.
2: Uh, Lee Clifton says Is the 2012 2013 League Two title winning squad at Gillingham the best group of players you've ever worked with?
1: Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. That that season, I know um, Port Vale went above us once. Yeah. Only in a whole season to do what we did was quite unbelievable. Unbelievable. We were seven points clear for most of that season, weren't we? Yeah. I mean,. I mean that doesn't happen It just doesn't happen it's, it's remarkable What Liverpool are doing now Is unique What they're doing And what we did Was unique And we had squad players Subs That would go in and play And it would never bother me About changing a, the, the players round Because they could all
2: go And play in a winning team All of them and Jackman Do you remember Jackman He was hardly played Danny Jackman yeah
1: And we put him in For a game Flipping hell That goal that he scored With his left foot in that top corner Was unbelievable Exeter, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Unbelievable. So we had such good players. And he, he was one I felt sorry for. I just couldn't really get him into the team.
2: He's at a stage of the year. He's a great professional though, Danny.
1: Diamond. An absolute <coughs> diamond. And I really wanted to help him, um, which is why I sort of let him go, to help him and his wife uh, with their young children. But in an ideal world, you know, I should have kept him, but I had to do it for him as a person.
2: I'm going to the last three now Uh, Dean McBino says Is there one player you tried to sign for Gillingham But that looked to be agreed But you couldn't quite get it over the line No Really?
1: No? Once we had players lined up Mr Scally done the business And signed everyone I wanted
2: Great That's very good actually Good answer, I like that um, Callum Ashby says when you were obviously manager at Jules, did you see the potential of Bradley Dak at the time and are you, are you surprised at how good a, a good a player he's gone on to become
1: Bradley Dak? Yeah Do you know what happened
2: with Bradley Dak? I know a story about I think it was at, Wick, was it at Wickham you gave him his debut and then hauled him off at half time
1: We were going to France on a pre-season trip. Mm. I've just put a mouthful of cake in my mouth. Hold on a minute. <laughs> um, we could take twenty players.
0: Yeah.
1: We only had nineteen, so we sort of asked around the other staff, "Who should we take? Who should we take?" Because Bradley Dak wasn't on the list. or oh, it was twenty-two players, I think it was, because we wanted to play eleven v eleven at different times. Bradley Dak wasn't on the list to go I'd never seen Dak I didn't even know who he was and then the day before we were going away to France we played Dagenham and Redbridge at home and it was one of those games where there's three 30 minute games you know those games yeah, 20 yeah. game. it was nil, nil and in the last half an hour <clears throat> I saw this boy on the side who was been flicking the ball about and um he went on for the last half hour. Never seen him play before.
0: Mm.
1: After two minutes, he had a chance that the goalkeeper saved in the box. Nearly scored. Five minutes later, he had another shot inside the box that just missed the post. Nearly scored. Ten minutes to go, still nil-nil. Back hits a shot and it goes in the bottom corner. We win 1-0. I went back to my office, have a staff upstairs, and I say, could someone tell me, that kid that played at the end, how many goals did he get last season in the youth team? And someone said 24. <laughs> what, from midfield? Yeah. 24 goals. And he's not in the first team. 24 goals from midfield. Those people are like gold dust, if you can find them.
2: Yeah, ridiculous numbers.
1: So, Dak came with us and he was in the younger group that had to do all the extra running. The group like the 18 and 19s that need to make that transformation from youth team to men's team. I've done the running and the first team squad used to watch the younger players run and it was tough. Dak won every race by a long way.
0: Mm.
1: And most of them were puking up at the end of it. And I thought, oh my God. This kid is a player. Oh my God, we've got something. So I put him on the list to go to France. I put him on the list to come to first team training then, and we gave him a squad number. And then um, I had a couple of little chats with Brad and his mum and dad as well. Lovely people. And then to see him go on and do as well as what he's done uh, is no surprise. Because he had unbelievable uh, running ability. He had great self-belief. He could finish, and he was hungry. Hungry. And he had self-belief. So that's the story of Bradley And I'm going to wind you back a second now. Yeah. What player did you not sign? I think that was your question. I can't remember the guy's name. Yeah. A minute ago. And I said, Mr Scully got everybody. Yeah. When we played Dagenham that day, they had a player playing up front called Dwight Gale.
2: Yeah. He
1: had white hair. Um, And I think it's okay to say he he was uh, was quite a small uh, black lad with white hair. So he was outstanding in that way, so to speak. I hope
0: I'm not being disrespectful to him. Um, But he was outstanding.
1: And then a cross came into the box and he climbed up above Adam Barrett like, oh my God, he's just gone up about six foot four and he's only five foot seven. After the second 30 minutes, I rang Mr. Scally in Dubai and said Mr Scully I've just seen a player we need to buy him this is in, the, in the, between the third the second and the third um, part of this little game and he said who is it I said he plays for Dagenham his name's Dwight Gale because so i found out from someone from Dagenham I said what a player I said you need to buy him we well, need to buy him now got to sign him so an hour later I rang him again said have spoken to them he's made an offer we made an offer for Dwight Gale before he got big time mm. and, uh, wasn't enough and then soon after that he signed for Peterborough I think it was
2: yeah Peterborough
1: um, we were that close to having him if we had assigned Dwight Gale without a shadow of a doubt when we went up to Division 1 we'd have been near the top in Division 1 because he was that good he was in a similar mould to DJ Campbell who I signed for non-league in the early days at Brentford, very fast, very quick, very hungry, and a great player, but we just, could, we just didn't bid enough money for him.
2: Poor signing that would have been, he's had a great career, he's so the eye for the player. <clears throat> and oh God, yeah, brilliant player, but that's
1: Bradley back, and then he, you know, obviously to see him go on and do what he's done, every now and then I send him a text message, and I get one back, um, he's a great lad as well, we really, really like him as a person, and his, and his mum and dad, so, um, no, great to see him uh, go on and do so well. And I often get a thank you text from him because the running and the training that he had to do was not um, what you'd probably want to do. But it certainly took him, I feel, it's taken it out to take him to another level.
2: Yeah, we've done relatively well in terms of finding players and moving them on. We had, a uh, think, a couple of seasons after you left, we had John Egan come through. He's now obviously playing for Sheffield United in the Premier League. So do well in that respect. Uh, we're going to leave you with one more question, Martin. This is a bit of a difficult one. You're going to you're going to make five people very happy and then upset probably about hundred. Can you name your ideal five-a-side team from the players you've managed? So five players you've managed in a five-a-side team. Well, Gilliam. This is your whole career. Oh,
1: blimey! Um, my wife just made some banana cake, and that's nice. Um, whole career well, DJ Campbell's got to be in it
0: yep.
1: he was good uh, Keith Andrews has got to be in it he was good um, I'm not sure Stuart Nelson would get in it because he's, he kicks it a long way and you can't kick it a long way in five side <laughs> um I don't know. I don't know what this fighter side team is. You've that one on me, haven't you? Why don't you text me that this morning? I will give you all the info. Well,
2: you've got to put on a spot at some point.
1: Um, I can't put Leon Legg in it because he's not the best footballer type. He's a good defender. Um about I'd de- say right sided defender from Leicester would be Bruno Angotti. Yeah. Right footed uh, World Cup winner with France. When I was at Leicester for that short time, I remember playing eight-a-side World Cup and he was captain of the French team at the training pitch and he couldn't understand why we were playing World Cup when it was just a training game. Uh, so Bruno would be in there. Uh, DJ Campbell, Keith Andrews, goalkeeper, best goalkeeper I've had would be Graham Stack. Barnard, Yeah, Premier League winner, championship uh, winner, uh, conference winner, stacking goal. Bruno N'Gotti on the right. I need a left-sided centre-back. Uh, Andy Yardom would have to be in that, who's now at Reading. I had him at Barnet. Uh, he's more quicker than Bruno N'Gotti, so we would take Bruno N'Gotti's place. Uh, Bruno, your sub-son. Uh, and y- Yardom on the right, on the left, he was quick and played at left. Joe Martin. Yeah. Let's have Joe. Joe Martin on the left, and Yardom on the right. Keith Andrews in the middle up front would be DJ Campbell and to play alongside DJ but to come back and help Keith to give us a little bit of defending our put in there um, 100% commitment and if it ever kicked off you'd have him on your side Danny Kedwell
2: well <laughs> you're the one who's put the most thought into that most people just say names and ran off you pop a through it and Kevin your actual reason so there's a nice 5 side team there. Martin, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. You know, it's, This is going to be an episode that people are going to love, I'm sure. It's been absolutely wonderful to record of you. Obviously, as I said, I've started your legend in my eyes at the club, so thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for the time. It's been an absolute pleasure and hopefully everything keeps going well with the family and enjoy your time off. Lovely. Thanks ever so much, Owen. It's nice to uh,
1: chat with you and uh... Best wishes to all the Chillingham fans. Best wishes to you all. Take care and stay safe. He's
0: lying.